Today, mate, 40 here, talking to author, philosopher, attorney, Ronnie Goldman. So I first learned about Ronnie approximately six, nine months ago when I read his memoir, The Star Chamber of Stanford on the Secret Trial, an Invisible Persecution of a Stanford Law Fellow. But it is his upcoming work, Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression, that really spun me right round. I've spent more time with this book than any other book in the past year. It's had more influence on my thinking than anything I've read in years. Then he's also got an upcoming work, The Critical Theory of Academia. And a few years ago, he published a work of philosophy called Two Orientations Toward Human Nature. Now, primary focus, I expect that this stream will be his memoir, The Star Chamber of Stanford, on the secret trial and invisible persecution of a Stanford law fellow. And there were two primary antagonists in this story and they just happen to be his Stanford law professors and early champions Barbara Freed and and Joe Bankman and then suddenly this guy Sam Bankman Freed hits the news he is the child of these two prestigious Stanford law professors and uh, Ronnie I just saw that these two Stanford law professors have have hired this uh, very high-powered uh, crisis management lady. <laughs> so, uh-huh, yeah, that's well, kind they're, of they're interesting. Already paying ten thousand a week, from what I've heard, in uh, in private security. Um, I guess she's there to salvage uh, reputation as opposed to their physical security. Yeah. So, I mean, what 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 chances does she have? You know, I don't know how she could help them. You know, I saw that they had both canceled their classes. Um, for the uh, the winter and spring terms, and you know, I mean, I can't blame them because even though you know, do I think they're involved in the criminal nitty gritty? I'm I'm rather doubtful of that. But it really it really doesn't the details of their culpability uh, doesn't really matter when it comes to standing up there in a classroom before all of these law schools to whom you've been held up as you know paragons of you know not only intellectual virtue but moral virtue as well and to get up there with everybody knowing you know you're a kid is sam bankman frayed like you know i don't know how you could get a word out so i really don't know what this pr specialist is supposed to help them with of course sam bankman frayed from early on has elected it seems deal with this more like a uh a, a pr crisis as opposed to a a, a legal crisis how hence his his ill-advised uh willingness to uh to get out there and and, and talk to just about uh everyone i would i would think his parents would be uh more cautious uh but you know um would be would be less less concerned with the the, the pr more preoccupied with the legal minutia, though though still, you know, I have to imagine that on on some level, their dilemma and his are quite similar because of intertwined. I mean, to imagine, you know, I was actually, you know, I didn't know about Sam Bankman-Fried for a good long while, and it was actually only a few months before the debacle that I happen across his name by chance. And I'm just looking at it and I'm thinking, wow, this guy has achieved a hell of a lot. What the hell have I done with my life? Well, needless to say, you know, a few more months, I felt a little a little better about the comparison. 
And I think just psychologically for this guy to be on top of the world and his parents to be by extension on top of the world as well as his springboard. And to that, for that to not only be taken away, stripped away, but positively turned upside down in, in a matter of a month, a, a month and a half, you know, your ego, because you're an elite, your ego is completely bound up with public perceptions of you. So maybe it's not that uh, incomprehensible that they would take these kinds of, of, of measures. Uh, but, you know, I don't, I don't know what it can, what it can do, you know, I mean, maybe they're hoping that, you know, he'll be exonerated in court. You know, I, I, I can't imagine that happening, but it's, it's, you know, it's possible at the end of the day, a, a jury is a, is a random collection of 12 people. Yeah. Now, uh, Joe Bankman and Barbara Freed are the antagonists in your book, but they're not the bad guys. They're just people with a different value system, a different philosophy, and people that you struggle against uh, to, to some extent in, in our typo terms they could be called gatekeepers but uh, right. why don't you talk a little bit more about their role as the as your antagonists in your memoir yeah well you know they were they were the ones who gave me the fellowship in in, in the first place which is why you know i can hardly cast them as somehow being out to get me from the get-go they certainly were you know to the to the contrary you know they had certain aspirations for me which are certainly intertwined with their own ego aspirations for themselves because i think that you know as i explained if you put out uh, a, a new grad onto the market it secures uh, a job somewhere particularly at a prestigious place that boosts your ego that boosts your institution's ego stanford and so they're putting this money in me and you know and they're not they're not completely closed-minded either because you know it was conservative claims of cultural oppression, what you've been reading, which initially sparked their interest and got me the the fellowship, among a few other things as well. Um, so they weren't, I can't, I can't say they were narrowly dogmatic either. And yet, uh, you know, in, in part due to my, my own commitments that eventually led to, uh, a clash, uh, which, you know, the, the, the details, as, as you'll understand, uh, you know, require their, the, uh, require a separate discussion to, to articulate. In fact, it would, I think it would require you to, to read, read the book to form any kind of a grip on, uh, on what I'm, uh, on what I'm saying. Um, but they, there was a certain, we'll just say there was a certain passive aggressiveness, which was created by my own failure to heed these, you know, academic principles and academic mores, which they were trying to, you know, transmit to me. So, you know, certainly I would not say, oh, you know, my book proves they're bad guys and now their kid proves that they're bad people. Ha ha. I do think there's probably a, uh, a connection between the two, but it's certainly... Uh, more complicated than anything like that. Yeah, no, no, no more person reading your book would think, "Oh, Barbara Free, Joe Bankman, these are bad people." I, I mean, yeah. you don't you don't portray them that way in, in the least. It's it's 
just two different uh, perspectives on life. And I'll just give a small example from, from my own life when I was training to be an Alexander Technique teacher with about a week to go before graduation. I just mm. published a, a blog post noting several critical making several critical remarks about one particular approach to the Alexander technique mm-hmm. and the the proverbial stuff hit the fan because you're not allowed to cr- publicly criticize anyone or any other approaches in the Alexander technique world if you if you want to have a, a role to play in the Alexander technique world and so I, I completely destroyed all my relations with my teachers which had you know developed you know on a daily basis over over three years I just blew it up but they were right. bad people the Alexander Technique was not a benighted community. It's just a clash of values. I really like to say what I want to say, and I am willing to give up almost anything to be able to say what I want to say. But that doesn't make my teachers or my profession bad. And you went through something similar. That's right. I, you know, I, I think that even though, yeah, certainly I, I never call them, uh, you know, bad, malevolent people. I, I do say that they have the pathologies of their culture the pathologies of their time and, and, and certainly it has been well established that at least you know that both parents were very actively involved in the upbringing of their children you know it wasn't just on particular occasion don't do that that's wrong but uh they had a utilitarian philosophy which they went out of their way to inculcate um and uh which went on to form sam bankman frieds view so of course one wants to ask well what is the connection between this utilitarian philosophy which appears to have been held unanimously by the family and what eventually uh happened you know and it, it it's very strange when when uh sam bankman freed gets interrogated you know uh whether by the new york times or other parties very much there is this you know well you know i did not knowingly intend to commit fraud so you know what he's what he's telling himself is, is that you know it was not his intention that everything wind up the way it has which is obviously true he didn't want to lose people's money he wanted to take people's money uh make a lot more money come out the hero be rich him self and to his mind you know he may well have rationalized that uh, you know given what i'm doing you know in the long run everyone even though I'm, I'm i'm maybe violating this term of service but in the long run i will be better off uh my clients will be better off because i will have made so much more money so sort of the the arrogance to set aside you know the ordinary morality which is a a simple matter of absolutes don't don't commingle funds not too hard to heed if you're if you're trying to but i think given his utilitarian background he had to see himself as somehow above that ordinary morality and i think his parents uh in their rationalism certainly conveyed that to him did they say did they convey oh steal funds from ftx no but these are things that follow or i don't want to say they follow logically but they certainly can follow logically insofar as you say well i'm going to judge morality by its consequences which means you know i'm not going to be bound 
by these these hidebound rules that have been passed off from the generations to the next because I have the ability to step back and rather than applying them automatically, I'm going to look at the big picture and think about the actual consequences of my actions. So you have that philosophy combined with this uh, very high level of self-confidence in his own uh, his own abilities. You put those things together, and uh, you very you very easily get a disaster. Now I'm just thinking off the top of my head, what are the, the major differences between the right and the left, as I understand it? And Carl Schmidt makes this point repeatedly, is that pretty much every right-wing political orientation begins with the presupposition that human nature is not basically good. And it right. seems like every left-wing political ideology begins with the presupposition that human nature is basically good, but capitalism, society, patriarchy, tradition, ignorance, lack of education has, has warped it. And so that then produces, you know, two very different orientations to to the world. One, one, the left wing side basically presupposes that people are born basically good, and we need to, you know, get rid of those things that are holding people down, so that their natural innate goodness is going to blossom. And the traditional perspective is, you know, people are born selfish, and it's only through society, community, uh, traditions that we're able to shape and restrain the natural moral anarchy that lurks inside everyone. Is, th is that fair? And do you think that might have any light to shed on the Sam Bankman Freed story? Yeah, I think, I think Bankman Freed and essentially his family are saying, well, you know, we don't need to be restrained by these uh, traditions. You know, I, 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 I think that, to the extent they would concede that there's something, you know, I don't, I don't know that they need to take a super strong uh, position on our inherent uh, goodness or lack thereof. But, but certainly, one important difference is, is that whatever, however problematic we may be morally, uh, the liberal elites like the the, the same Ekman Fried set, I think that can the individual human intelligence has the power to address and control that. Whereas I, I think on the conservative end, it's a, a much more humble uh, understanding of individual capacities. You know, Sal talks about the vision of the anointed on the left versus the tragic vision, the idea of there being these, uh, these inherent uh, limitations um, the you know on on the left they see tradition i guess as really the source of uh of human misery I, I, either as you know causing human beings to do things they wouldn't otherwise do or to the extent they have certain you know inherent self-aggrandizing inclinations as giving them permission to do something they wouldn't otherwise have uh permission to do but uh your own sense of yourself, your own sense of your good intentions uh, can give you permission to transgress as as well. You know, um, Sam Bankman-Fried, he was a follower of, uh, I think it was uh, William uh, McCaskill. He was an, he's an Oxford philosopher at the forefront of the effective altruism uh, movement, which is an extension of utilitarianism. And... Uh, Shortly after the scandal, he said, well, you know, 
we effective altruists have never advocated uh, for the, the issue of the issuing of ordinary everyday common sense like don't don't steal funds for example you know that is not what we're saying to the extent that uh, we have been understood as arguing for that well then then same bank and freedom has betrayed us but you know i don't think they get that whole school gets off so easily because if you are a true utilitarian if you do ascribe this uh great ability to the human intelligence or at least to the human intelligence of some people to make these moral calculations unconstrained by uh by tradition well then you are telling them essentially to ignore everyday common sense because if you're not going to ignore the everyday common sense morality then you really don't need utilitarianism so this is kind of a you know af after the fact saying you know this doesn't really follow this isn't what we're defending but i think i think it, it can follow logically yeah i my my understanding of virtually any traditional right-wing understanding of life is that we don't trust human beings on their own individually as far as we can throw them any you know right-wing perspective says we have much more trust in family than we do in the individual we have more trust in community than we do in the individual we have more trust in in social systems from capitalism to feudalism to any any system but the individual just going out and doing what he thinks is right and good i don't know any right-wing perspective on life that says yeah that sounds great is that fair well i i guess it depends on how you define right wing i mean certainly if you look at the traditional right-wing uh, theorists in the vein of, uh, you know, most famously Edmund Burke and others, you know, Thomas Sowell, then I think that's certainly an accurate characterization. But in the American context, at least, I think the meaning of right-wing is a little bit more problematic, a little bit it's more... It's more like classical liberalism, which could even be considered part of the left. Like, is John Locke a man of the right from a Hobbesian Schmidtian perspective? No. Right. So, so yeah, it's, it's a little bit more complicated in the, in, 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 in the American context, but I would agree with what you said as sort of a characterization of the, uh, the great conservative theorists. Right. I'm thinking Thomas Hobbes perspective, most famous quote is that life is, you know, nasty, brutish and short and that, that, uh, human beings left to their own devices will slaughter each other. And therefore, right. we need to make a compromise with the great Leviathan, the state, to keep you know men from swallowing each other alive, which basically uh, replicates the perspective of, of the Jewish tradition, which which instructs you know pray for the welfare of the government because without it, men will swallow each other alive, yeah. which is very different from an attitude of follow your bliss. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, the the enormous trust that was placed in Sam Bankman Freed when he got, you know, he got, he could get these multi-million dollar investments while playing uh, video games during meetings. I mean, it certainly highlights uh, the extent to which uh, on, on, on the left, you know, the, at least the, the, the cult, the, the cultural left, there, there is certainly a certain uh, susceptibility to a certain, you know, cultural, cultural signals, he sends out those vibes, he sends out those signals, and that is enough to disarm uh, people's uh, suspiciousness 
that's that's a very interesting phenomenon because from you know from what I understand, people who understand virtual currency and understand finance at an adequate level and were paying attention to what was going on with with Sam Bankman Freed, they could tell something was fishy well before the bankruptcy. You didn't have to be a genius to to come to the right conclusions if you were just paying attention and if you refused to allow yourself to be bamboozled by this this cultural left uh, signaling, which it, it seems disabled uh, many people's many people's critical critical function. I think so that that sort of highlights, I think. Uh, a major uh, conservative theme that I that I discuss in conservative claims of cultural oppression, the sense that uh, you know the liberal sense that they have overcome this more primitive level of communication and understanding, where people respond to the prestige of cultural signals or you know hero systems, as I discuss it, and instead respond solely to facts and apply abstract moral principles to. Uh, facts clearly that is not what happened in this case there is a kind of liberal mystique which is just as anti-empirical just as anti-scientific as the mystiques that you will find on the right and i think i think i think it it, it highlights that fact certainly i'm thinking off, off the top of my head about another distinction between the liberal world as I know it in academia and, and among you know my, my liberal friends in and around academia is there's much more of a longing for this worldly utopia. While every right-wing person I, who's, who's thoughtful has no understanding or yearning for utopia, it knows that uh, essentially we're all locked in an iron cage together. Like that's a right. traditional right-wing perspective on life. We are all locked in an iron cage together. There is no higher authority is going to bail us out. There's, there's no escape from group conflict. Like there's, there's, there's no utopia possible because different groups have different interests and resources are finite. So this whole string of utopianism in the Sam Bankman Freed crusade and in the, the, the crypto world is completely anathema to any traditional perspective on life. Is that fair? For sure, for sure. I mean, I mean, in the U.S., and I guess this is what I was hinting at before. You know, liber- libertarians who certainly have a strong affinity for uh, for Bitcoin do identify themselves with uh, with conservatives, and I think you know conservatives are you know, insofar as it's an ally against the left, they're not they don't sort of kick them away outright. Um, but yeah, for sure. For sure, Bitcoin. It's. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, it's it's the greater fool theory. So if you were lucky enough to have bought it at the right time, you could certainly you could certainly make a killing. But yeah, it's it's value which is completely unmoored from any institution, from any practice. It's actually it's a form of value which is based on uh, pure subjectivity. The pure, the pure belief by the individual in the value of the virtual currency, and uh, and nothing, nothing, nothing beyond that. So yeah, it is, it is, I guess, uh, a, an example of pure, pure, unhinged, uh, uprooted modernity. Right. So from the the traditional perspective of of from from 
the skeptical view of human nature in in the Hebrew Bible to Thomas Hobbes to to Edmund Burke and Carl Schmitt. There's just as far as I'm aware of the of the great thinkers who I consider right wing. There's you know, very little consideration paid to a utopia in, in this world. That there's it's never seen as an end to you know fundamental clashes of group conflict. Inevitable the inevitability of of conflict, the, the tragedy of, of politics, like the the traditional perspective on life is is largely a tragic one. Is that fair? I think I think that's fair, and certainly you could have you could have no stronger an illustration of that view than the SBF scandal, where things you know effective altruism leads to the opposite. There is this his parents spending their lives trying to inculcate him with the appropriate moral philosophy, and this leads to their own embarrassment and professional downfall. It's really a story about the sort of the, the tragic limits of human competence and human uh, you know um, and human co- cognition that there's this like, your 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 intentions your best efforts are you know i guess just a a grain of sand among all the various factors that are going to determine the, the final outcome a, a very inconsequential piece of the equation yeah i was remember the joe bankman interview which is on youtube which came out just a few months before the Tim bankman free yeah, FTX, fiasco. Uh, yeah. FTX podcast interview. yeah yeah and he he is describing such a utopian vision of what fdx is going to be able to do for poor people and get them checking accounts and banking accounts and and that's not someone like steeped in a Hobbesian worldview would ever say, because like from a, from a trad perspective, if you like create all these wonderful instruments, it's not going to revolutionize the lives of poor people because from a traditional perspective, the greatest obstacle for poor people are, you know, poor people's character. It's not, you know, these external banking accounts. Yeah. I, I mean, well, you know, Is it their character? Well, if it wasn't originally, certainly it becomes that, among other things. You know, um, even if, you know, I might, I might, even if, if, you know, why do certain families fall into a cycle of poverty? Well, even if at the inception it's a function of blind economic forces, even that's what explains why somebody becomes homeless. Um, the fact that after a certain point, the characterological obstacles to fixing the situation are going to assume a life of their own, even if there was nothing there from from the outset. So you know. So yeah, I would I would agree that therefore. Uh, that is to greatly overestimate the the technical solutions, the the efficacy of these kinds of tele, uh, 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 technical solutions, like everybody having an an FTX account. I guess that was that was the dream, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, from a from a traditional perspective, uh, I lead my life as an Orthodox Jew. It's just taken for granted that every individual, in most circumstances, his greatest struggle is going to be with himself, and that is just 
seems to be completely absent from the the Stanford Law elite, the, the, the Joe Bankman FTX interview, but that that, that worldview that the individual's greatest struggle is with his own, you know, his own weakness, his own fragility, his own selfishness and cruelty and lust. That's that's the traditional perspective, but it seems to be largely absent from the elite perspective, which posits that an individual's greatest struggle is almost always with forces outside himself that have perhaps made him ignorant or bigoted, or he's surrounded by these these negative forces. Is that fair? Yeah, well, I mean, let's let, let's think about what SBF has said to explain, you know, his situation. Yeah, I mean, he blames, he, insofar as he blames himself, uh, he'll he's only blaming his own inadvertent, you know, incompetence, you know, I wasn't quite on top of it. On top of it, as I I I I should have been, I underestimated the challenge. So that yeah, that is the closest uh, that he will blame himself. And besides that, it's just it's you know bad luck, the Bitcoin market, and the machinations of uh, of his competitors. He blames them as well. But yeah, there's no actual struggle. And when I, when I look at him. It really, it really screws with your mind because you know, I don't know, I don't know what you think, but like, does he believe what he's saying? And I, I just don't know because, on the one hand, if I just look at his like temperament and his persona, there's he seems to be exuding something sincere, Now that might be a complete illusion. But I think people know what I'm know what I'm talking about. He really seems to believe that there's a certain innocent core of himself in there that he just needs to communicate to people in some way. Um, of course, objectively, you know, how could he not know that the funds were being commingled? You know. Uh, how that could be the result of inadvertence that beggars the b- belief. So when I look at the facts and I go back and I look at his performance, you know, how could he possibly believe that performance? And yet he seems to believe it. I, at least, you know, he's able to persist with it at a, at a, to an extent and at a level suggests that he himself believes it. And, you know, how he can bring himself to do that. Uh, I mean, I would guess that has something to do with his upbringing and, you know, the boundless self-confidence and self-love that his liberal parents instilled in him. And, you know, maybe they thought they were doing a great job with that, but we saw we saw the result. So there's something else about the liberal narrative that, that always uh, gets to me, and that is the the laying out of the story of the ever unrushing increase in human freedom. Like we just need, you know, new laws to protect uh, the transgendered from being bullied. We need uh, new laws to protect, you know, this class from housing, employment, uh, discrimination, like, and we're always increasing human freedom. And we're, we're part of this long march towards the, the sunlight of human freedom and, and flourishing. And I'm, standing back saying hell you can never increase human freedom for one group 
such as the transgendered, without taking away freedom from another group. And so one freedom that's been destroyed in this country is the freedom to discriminate. And I'm thinking in particular about what used to be called, or maybe still called, white shoe firms. There were white shoe firms, law firms, and financial firms on Wall Street who did not want to employ Jews. And one of the reasons they did not want to employ Jews is that they did not want to engage in any risky behavior. They wanted to stick by you know, their traditional morality of how you, you should operate, and they associated Jews, rightly or wrongly, with you know, a greater willingness to engage in risky financial instruments. Sam Bankman-Fried is not the first famous Jew who has pioneered and become you know, famous for adventures in risky financial instruments. Well, those bad old days where you had white shoe firms that you know, would not engage in risky practices. And part of the way they protected themselves from that is by essentially staying within an Anglo-Saxon employment structure. Well, that is illegal now. You you cannot, you know, you cannot operate, you know, like the the white, white shoe firms do. And so when you have to employ, you know, anyone, regardless of ethnicity, religion, uh, sexual orientation, etc., you are going to be introducing much more moral chaos into your firms because you don't have an agreed-upon morality anymore. And so I'm thinking just off the top of my head, some of these risky financial instruments and and adventures, they're they're much more likely in a multicultural society where we have less in common with each other. Like a diverse society means we have less in common with each other. In a traditional society or a traditional white shoe firm, we we hold by a certain ethic. Uh, we you know we're related to each other. We we come from you know a similar Anglo heritage, and there are just certain things that we don't do, such as you know playing video games while pitching you know for for billions of dollars. So that that traditional approach is now illegal, which and the homogeneity which meant that you knew more what was going on with other people is now effectively illegal in, in the workplace. And so our, our newly you know, diverse multicultural uh, firms are much more wide open to this kind of uh, moral anarchy. Any thoughts? Well, I mean, so first of all, I mean, I, I think I in the context of, let's say, white shoe law firms, you know, most you, you go to the top law schools, which is where they're going to recruit most of their incoming associates. Really, regardless of your ethnic background, I think by the time you're, you're there, I mean, you've gone through the college system, you've navigated that, you got into law school, you've made it through your third year, you know, by by that point in time, I don't know that people say, you know, ethnic sensibilities are so, so great. I mean, whatever we might assume they could be. So let's say the period you're talking about in the early 20th century, you've got your, you know, you've got your Jews on the Lower East Side, you've got your Italian neighborhoods, et cetera, et cetera. Um, whatever legitimacy people's perceptions of ethnic differences may have had then, I think are in today's world, at least in the professional context, 
you know, greatly smoothed over by these institutions, which for better or worse, make people a lot more the same than they used to be. Now, if you're going to say, okay, but is there, is there a, a, a disproportionately large number of Jewish fraudsters up there, right? So, yeah, uh, SPF is being compared to Bernie Madoff, who's also Jewish. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you can certainly point out to non-Jewish fraud, uh, Enron, and uh, World Cobb and so forth, but, you know, is there is there a, a disproportionate number of Jewish fraudsters, uh, financial fraudsters out there? Maybe, maybe there is, you know. But uh, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's there's a, a, a disproportionate number of Jewish many things. Some of them good, and 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 some of them bad. Obviously, um, would you know? I mean, was there? I don't know. I mean, I'd be interested in someone, you know, studying the like the instances of fraud in the U.S. when it was a less multicultural society and more homogeneously Anglo-Saxon. Um, it would be something. It would be very hard to measure, just because you know so many other things have changed since 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 then as well. Uh, I, I think it would be quite difficult to prove that it was this one factor, uh, ethnic heterogeneity, that was, you know, by and large responsible for this increase in fraud, assuming there has been an increase in fraud. I'm not, I'm not sure, but that, that's the sort of thing where I would, I would want to check my, check my gut with whatever rigorous studies are available, and I don't, I don't know what is available. Yeah, I'm just thinking about banking where innovation used to be a dirty word. In certain approaches to banking, certain approaches to financial instruments, innovation was a dirty word. Now, if, if there are a disproportionate number of Jewish fraudsters, there are also a disproportionate number of Jewish innovators. So, you know, God forbid, I'm not saying, you know, Jews are bad and we were better off when it was perfectly legal for companies not to employ them. I'm just pointing out that with every advance, quote unquote, in human rights and human flourishing, it always comes at a price. You are destroying freedom of association. And th there used to be bankers and there used to be you know, people in the, the financial world and in, in law firms where innovation was a dirty word. <clears throat> so obviously anyone, any firm with an outlook, innovation is a dirty word, is, is not going to be you know, jumping on board the, the crypto train. Right. Right. And, um, and, go ahead. Sorry. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, that that's just what what struck me that uh, for from a from a center and, and left wing perspective, innovation is almost always a great thing. From a trad perspective, immigration is something that you're highly skeptical of because we're so skeptical of human nature. Is that fair? Yeah, I I I think so. I think though. Um... It, it, it's fine to define the trad perspective, you know, that that way. But, you know, if, if that's sort of the the essence of real conservatism in American life, then it, it's not a, a perspective which is, you know, uh, nearly as vociferous as maybe one might might hope, you know, even though, you know, 
you've got you've got certain you know conservative skepticism of certain kinds of businesses you know facebook google and uh and so forth you know by and large um in america today people associate conservatism with this uh very raw rugged individualism and to the extent that they defend traditional values it's not really quad traditional values it's more hey we happen to believe these things and we have these imperious woke politically correct leftists who are trying to obtrude upon our, our our right to express these views but ultimately it's defended in the name of individualism there's very little uh barely more or less negligible uh, actual traditionalism in american political life now maybe that's that might be motivating people and they can't acknowledge what's actually motivating them and so they need to maybe articulate some of their traditionalist sentiments in a more libertarian uh vein but i think i think you know uh you know, everyone is worried about you know how how people are are cowed by the wokeness and uh, political correctness of the of, of the left. But you've got you have to ask yourself to what extent are bona fide traditionalists such as yourself, uh, you know, in society at large have been have been suppressed, cowed. I don't know what the term is uh, from transgressing sort of the libertarian framework which mainstream conservatives have adopted even if they don't want to call themselves uh, libertarian yeah i mean individualism is not a is not a praiseworthy trait in in most traditional societies right they're, they're almost antip antipodes right and 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 yet and yet in the american context right uh, it's very hard to to retain your your political credibility if you if you dismiss individualism. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another thing that that's just coming to mind, just all these thoughts coming to mind as I'm talking to you, is that there's much more of an emphasis on comportment on the traditional side of things compared to the liberal left things. So that you'd be playing video games while, while pitching a business is absolutely inconceivable from a traditional perspective. How you dress is very important from a traditional perspective. You wouldn't show up to work or to a work meeting in, in sweats or, or jeans and a t-shirt. Uh -huh. right. So is, is that fair comportment? It tends to be much more of a, a traditional value and much less of a liberal left Stanford law value. I think so. And I think we have to ask ourselves, you know, why that is. So why, why on the, the woke left, as it were, are they going to dismiss the importance of these, you know, these, these little morals, uh, which is what, uh, I think, uh, uh, Gertrude, I, I write. I I'm going over uh, the 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 manuscript of conservative claims of cultural oppression, and uh, so I'm going over how Gertrude Hemelfarb was saying, you know, the Victorians, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, they had moral principles, but they also attached a lot of importance to the little morals, little everyday things that showed, you know, you were you you had character, so. 
in this case, it would be, you know, not not wearing shorts when you're going to visit uh, uh, Tony Blair and Bill Clinton uh, the way SBF did, right? Not playing video games when you're talking to the board of uh, Sequoia or Blackstone. And there's this idea that, you know, yeah, well, we have for an autonomous, a liberated autonomous mind, we are going to, our behavior is going to be driven by our ideas, by our thinking, not by these little everyday habits like how you dress or how you speak in certain contexts. Those are... We are we are above that. We are governed by our mind, not by habit. So his decision, um, you know, the way the way he dressed and conducted himself is certainly a. Uh, I mean, certainly, okay. Look, Silicon Valley generally is kind of on the on the looser looser end of things, but I do think that he was in. in in a kind of ostentatious way, even though he, you know, supposedly he was he was not dressing ostentatiously, but his not dressing ostentatiously was itself an ostentatious assertion of this principle. I'm this truly rational actor. My actions are going to be guided by my intellectual conception of ultimate outcomes not by these unthinking inherited mores like how you dress or how you conduct yourself at at meetings and that was uh that was that was part of his of his uh allure it was actually you know one more advertisement for his uh his superior intelligence and superior intelligence of his milieu my brain is going to be what gives you the assurances you want. You know, I don't have to be wearing decent, decent pants. You know, that's, that's, that's the message. So yeah, I think that's, that sort of was one of one more manifestation of the elite philosophy, certainly. Yeah. And that's also perhaps also a class thing that uh, the, the working class and the lower middle classes would, place i would expect much more emphasis on comportment and the upper middle classes and upper classes would would be fine with less emphasis is that fair yeah they well they, they put they put less emphasis because they you know they they want to say uh and, and this is actually something i i discussed quite a bit i think it's in uh uh i don't know chapter five or or, or chapter chapter six of conservative uh Claims of cultural oppression, you know, the the new the new Victorianism, you know, how is uh, you know, how we really uh, issued uh, Victorianism, and there is sort of the sense that you know, yeah, like the lower the lower classes have not necessarily yet absorbed the kind of this kind of Victorian self discipline. They can't take it for granted. They don't expect others to take it for granted in them. And therefore, they need to give off these signals that they have indeed absorbed these disciplines, which is, would be by conducting themselves appropriately at a meeting, dressing the right way, and, and, and so forth. But Sam Bankman-Fried is essentially saying, I have gone 
beyond that earlier evolutionary stage. You know, you had to discipline yourselves. You have to monitor yourselves. You have to show that you're with it. But I, as a member of this elite, and be and just beyond that, been there, done that. Um, my mind has has achieved this autonomy, so yeah. I can I can direct myself. I don't I don't need these these habits and mores to do it. Yeah, do you remember Tim Tebow, the Christian? quarterback for the Denver Broncos. It was a sensation about 10, 12 years ago. But whenever he talked to a reporter, he would always insist on addressing them as Mr. or Ms. Right. Like the only professional athlete to conduct himself that that way. Uh, and, and that is a, a more traditional approach to life. How did you address your Stanford law professors? Did you address them by their first name or did you address them? It was them first as- name. Yeah. And, and that's, that's really fairly... Uh, fairly common all the way back in um in uh even in in, in grad school as well you know and uh, and i i think it's and it's like it, that was how it is in indiana i don't know that it's like that um everywhere so i think let's say fordham right did a postdoc that's sort of a catholic i think there that might have been more um you know professor so forth but i think most graduate programs um it is by their first name now at stanford at Stanford Law School, if you were just a student, uh, for the most part, you would call them professor so-and-so. But if you're a student who's sort of moving into the academic track, then they already see you as, you know, you're a student, but a would-be colleague. So at that point, it becomes more common to refer to them by their, by their first names. So that's that that's sort of my my, my sense of it but but in a normal graduate program like you know philosophy humanities or whatever it's going to be a first name basis and and do you think that uh, sam bankman freed and his brother were raised to to address the, the, their parents friends by mr and mrs or this is you know jack and jane i'm sure it was jack and jane yeah for sure yeah. you know i mean yeah, uh, th- that that would be. I mean, I'm just thinking from you know, like a lot of my 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 parents' friends were academics. You know, they could have been called professors or doctors, or whatnot. But it was sort of on a uh, on 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 a first name basis. Apparently, you know, they were sort of bringing them to law school. They were playing on the floor there when they were toddlers. So everybody got to know them. So you know, one of the uh, I mean, you know, it's been it's been revealed. Um, you know, there were there were two other uh, uh, people who put up bond for his his bail beyond his parents, and one of them was Larry Kramer, who's you know one of the other characters in the the book. He put up a uh, half a million dollars, apparently. But I'm I'm sure that to uh, SBF, he is uh, Uncle Uncle Larry, more or less. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so, from the reason, from a traditional perspective, is that we do this is because we don't trust people. We, we want to educate and, and mold people to recognize distinctions, gradations, and hierarchies. And it's not the, you know, great leveling where you know, everyone's just on a first-name basis. And because we don't trust people, we want them to dress you know, more uh, appropriately or more professionally than the, the normal human inclination. Because from, from a traditional ex- perspective, we expect people will behave better when they're dressed in a suit as opposed to shorts and a t-shirt 
I think that's pretty fair from a traditional perspective. And I think it's also pretty fair from a liberal left perspective that it's not going to make much difference whether someone's wearing sweats or wearing a suit in in the morality of how they conduct themselves. What do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I when, when you said that, I, I think back to my own experiences and my own uh, transgressions. So, you know, I did not uh, I, I never wore shorts to the law school, but I certainly wore jeans, you know, as did as did other people. So that would not you know, when I was when I was a fellow there and certainly I referred to all the professors by their, you know, first first names. And, uh, you know, and I'm sure there's sort of, you know, other of these, you know, markers of equality that are sort of part of the, you know, the the liberal elite Bobo dispensation. And I think to myself now, well, what if what if formally Stanford had been a more conservative place and you always speak to them as professors and so forth and everything had been much more ostensibly rigid, you know, would I have felt the license to go down my my wayward path, uh, maybe maybe not. You know, then you wouldn't have the memoir, you know, or anything else. But you know, arguably, even though it is a hierarchical place, the issue of these outward markers of hierarchy may have sought, kind of you know given me a, a, a certain feeling of, of of license to transgress. Which you know, which 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 I did, you know. I think I think the overall, you know, the outcome, the book is redeems it. But but what have you? Yeah, these these little little things. It's very easy to dismiss them as small little things, which they are in the abstract. But they 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 add up or or fail to add up. And with with the traditional perspective, there is an acceptance of hierarchy as inevitable as the laws of gravity, that there are, you know, essentially aristocratic type people, there are, you know, monarchs, there are, you know, I would never call any orthodox rabbi by his, his first name. There's just an acceptance of gradations and hierarchy and, and you know, a recognition of the, the gradations and the hierarchy and and the idea of living in a world without hierarchy and gradations is just completely unfathomable from a traditional perspective. While I, it just feels like the the son of Stanford Law graduates, uh, hierarchy is something more that you want to smash. It's a it's an out you know outmoded traditional ignorant way of organizing human societies. We can do much better with you know human flourishing if we let go of all these traditional hierarchies is that fair yeah that that that, that, that that's the idea and you know and certainly when i think about the time where the the events uh underpinning the memoir took place yeah you know i was i was like in my mid-30s at the time so kind of you know i, I kind of look you have this irrational hierarchy which is based on these outmoded prejudices about what rigorous academic work is uh and i uh i i rebelled against it with as i acknowledge in the book kind of an overly naive sense of how easy it would be to to topple it and uh alas here i am now still you know fighting that that hierarchy trying to get these books out even though i would think that sort of even though my my intellectual level compared to where i was in my 
mid-30s is much higher, but I'm totally detached from these these fonts of of power, and so I'm still sort of fighting it in a very uphill sort of of of, of way. And uh, so, yes, you know, the hierarchy will always be there in one form or another. You know, the forms can be very different. You know, initially when you had all these anthropologists who went out to see these non-Western societies and they were just, you know, overwhelmed, uh, uh, very impressed by the lack of hierarchy and, you know, literary anthropologists said, well, when you kind of look more closely, yeah, it's not as overt or crude or categorical as it is in more complex societies, but you can certainly see it's, 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 it's there. And then when you, so when I, when I look back at my own conflict with Stanford, you know, because the, there's a liberal elite Bobo ethos, um, certainly there's a tendency on my part to overlook uh, that, that, that hierarchy and, and run right uh, roughshod into it. But, uh, but it is, it is, it is, it is there, you know, but you know, that's fine. You know, I accept, I accept this this fight against the hierarchy. I don't even think about it in terms of who's right or wrong anymore. That's just that's just the situation I'm in, which is not necessarily a situation I would wish upon most most people. So you know, to challenge and overthrow hierarchy, I think it's good that there are certain people out there who deviate from the program and try to do just that but it's certainly not a uh, a prescription for normal human flourishing in most cases so one of the most frequent admonitions i still receive from people i, I grew up with who are 20 30 years older than me is be a good boy so even at age 56 i, I talked to you know friends of mine who are now in their 80s and the way they'll they'll close off a phone conversation is like you go be a good boy uh, I'm I'm just wondering what are the odds that that was one of the frequent admonitions that Sam Bankman-Fried has received. Yeah, well, I think I probably not because for them for them to to even say that would have been to acknowledge the possibility that he was might not be a good boy or that he might need you know external encouragement, but. When you have this very uh, robust uh, conception of potential human autonomy and self-directedness uh, and, and, and reflection, as you had in the Bankman-Fried household, uh, I think they would not have gone out and said, you know, be a good boy. That would have been kind of insulting. You would say, well, this is, this is the good choice of action. Here's why that would have been a respectful way of addressing him to their their mind not 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 be a good boy that's that's something you know you could also tell a dog as well right <laughs> but i mean that would immediately that would immediately typecast you as as you know some ridiculous person stuck in a hidebound traditional way of life if you were overheard by by elites or stanford college uh, stanford law yeah. professors instructing your your child now go be a good boy right right yeah that would that, that would be completely out of place i think 
Yeah, I mean, did you ever hear uh, Stanford elite or any ac- academic elite, you know, instruct their their children or their students, in essence, go out and be a, be good, be a good good girl, good boy? Yeah, no, I think I I think as you said, I think I think they would they would have felt embarrassed uh, to be overheard uh, <laughs> saying that to say that. I mean, because it just like it assumes that this uh, this concept of goodness is uncontested, and you know only a rube, only a peasant would make such an assumption. So yeah, yeah even to use it in an unironic, uncontested way would be considered objectionable. Now, uh, Barbara. Reed, I believe, famously wrote an essay against personal responsibility. Yeah, the uh, Boston, I think the Boston Review, something like that, yeah. Yeah, so I'm sure that wasn't the only time that that type of thinking, you know, has has flowed from her. So let's say you grow up in a home where it's taken for granted that individuals overwhelmingly are not responsible for their behavior. I I think it, it would be common sense that that would have some effect on one i think so you know i think again you know of, of course if you were to challenge her on that she's gonna say listen you've gotta you, what i was saying is a lot more nuanced than that you know i know that you know in real life uh we're gonna blame each other for certain actions we're gonna call these certain actions wrong i know we're human but i'm just saying when you sort of step back and you formulate public policy and you have to look at the big picture in those contexts, you know, I would say be a little more reticent to ascribe blame. So, you know, yeah, she would, she would certainly say that, you know, her argument was more nuanced than that, but even if it was, and I imagine it was, I've, I've looked through part of it still, you know, the way you influence your children, it's on multiple levels and, you know, official precepts is one of them but i think she probably also influenced them just by communicating this sense of their own sophistication that you know of course we understand that in reality we're all we're all caught up by a greater world more powerful than us so take individual blame with a grain of salt I think, you know, that message was probably routinely communicated, maybe not explicitly, certainly not explicitly most of the of the time, but that would have been there. That blame is uh, an unsophisticated emotion. Maybe maybe it's necessary on certain occasions. Maybe it's an inescapable human social practice, but we understand, we enlightened ones, we understand that it's an unsophisticated emotion. Well, once you... If that's conveyed to you, if that is conveyed to Sam Bankman Freed, that you know, yeah, this is this is kind of a kind of a, a primitive emotion, at least something to be scrutinized. Well, yeah, what is what is the chance that you're going to start applying it to your 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 your, your, your yourself? Uh, they're going to be they're going to be lower even if your parents never categorically, you know, rejected it, the, 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 the vibe, the ethos will have been communicated to you. And I was just thinking off, off the top of my head, I think the, the traditional reaction to a Sam Bankman Freed type scandal would be what the hell is wrong with Sam Bankman Freed and his parents 
and his community because from a traditional perspective there aren't individuals nearly so much they're just members of a, of a tribe or a community or an, an extended family like this idea that we're all individuals born with certain inalienable rights such as life liberty and the pursuit of happiness that is not a traditional perspective on life that is a ridiculous perspective on life that is an absurd you know left-wing commie perspective on life to dramatically overstate the the, the case while i think from a sophisticated liberal left perspective on the Sam Bankman freed scandals of our time is like, where did our regulation of financial instruments go wrong? How did we get our regulation so wrong? So it seems to me that the, the trad perspective is more, more <laughs> ironically, like where did this individual, his community family, you know, go wrong? And the right. sophisticated left liberal one is, you know, how did we in our legislation not have, you know, more sophisticated laws about this type of thing? What do you think? Yeah, well, they're both they're both uh, valid, uh, valid inquiries. And I think that, uh, you know, at, at, at the end of the day, you know, maybe even even if you espouse a certain uh, individualism, maybe no one can really live up to it fully because, at, you know, at, at the end of the day. Sam Bankman Fried's parents, there is a certain shame which has now fallen upon them by virtue of having spawned him. And there's really no no getting out of that, you know. At the end of the day, like they can, you know, they were true individuals. They can say, listen, we did our uh, best. We never endorsed this stuff. We're all uh, we're all free. We made we made these uh, decisions. He made his decisions. You know, whatever, wh whether legal or illegal, we were not involved with that. You know, not only were they not, you know, say that because that would that would be seen as throwing him under the under the bus. But they also, another reason they wouldn't say it is just because it's you know it's discordant with this primordial uh, parental pride which they or shame as the case may be which you know they have uh felt and will continue to feel in one form or uh or 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 or, or another and so you know but of course you know do they believe in individualism well it's not completely consistent with their utilitarian uh philosophy either because an individual is is has been no less than anything else uh, been been caused by these deterministic uh, social social forces, or, her, or I should say, her her no her no blame philosophy. So you know, there, it's a it's a uh, mess of uh, contradictions. You know, you you don't believe in individualism insofar as uh, you will forbear uh, severe blaming practices, but. You do believe in individualism insofar as you exalt in your uh, your uh, purportedly superior intellect's ability to, you know, to calculate moral outcomes without reliance on blindly inherited tradition. Now, wouldn't uh, Joe Bankman and, and Barbara Freed, uh, you know, argue that any attribution of of shame to them for their child's misbehavior? It shows a lack of moral sophistication, that it's a product of ignorance and bigotry, and that people need more education to be able to, you know, transcend these primitive perspectives on life. 
that argument would be cons- would be consistent with views that they've surely expressed, but it would contradict their own feelings. Because yeah. on on some on some level, you know, you can you know whatever whatever and this is a profoundly traditionalist slash conservative point that you know whatever whatever your theories, you are bound by certain sentiments, and they feel a certain responsibility for their son's actions. They feel they are defined by their son's actions on a certain level. They felt that when they had a uh, uh, heightened uh, conception of his actions, they continue to feel that now that they know the the truth, they just feel shame rather than pride. So I, I think they're, they're very gut feelings about the situation is at a minimum intention with their modernist morality. Yeah. Yeah. And did you ever hear Sam Bankman Freed's parents like talk about, you know, what's wrong with so-and-so's parents? How could they produce a, a child like this? You know, I, I, I did not, I, I, I can't say whether or not they've ever said something like, like that, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a normal way of thinking. And if you were, uh, if you like were to encounter parents and children where you could like detect a certain continuity of the, uh, of the pathology, that would be a very natural thing to say, but I can't, I I've, I've not heard them say that, but I've not been around them uh, in context where they might've said that. So I can't, I can't really say whether they would or wouldn't. And did you ever hear them talk about fraudsters, the, the Bernie Madoffs, the, the, you know, anyone who's put up anything akin to what their son did, did you, do you recall any commentary from them on, you know, this type of what trads would call? I don't, I don't, I don't recall such commentary. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. And, uh, along part of the, the liberal left, uh, elite worldview is that punishment's a dirty word because, in a sophisticated understanding of reality, people aren't responsible for their behavior. Therefore, punishing them for things that they're not responsible for is retrograde. Is that fair? Yeah, well, that is that is indeed, you know, Barbara's Barbara's view. You know, I mean, I don't I don't think that anybody can truly climb above uh, retribution. Uh, I don't know that she would argue that, that everybody could because uh, she certainly, you know, I do think that. She, for all her progressivism, I think she had some appreciation, at least, for the crooked timber of humanity that we are sort of given to certain reactions, which rational or irrational, uh, we can't fully transcend. Uh, And so I think that she would herself acknowledge that, you know, retribution is not, uh, you know, she's not she's not claiming that you can snap your fingers and uh and and be over it and certainly my own encounters with 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 her in my in my hypothesis accept it or not you know i think that she was certainly driven by feelings of retribution which is completely completely normal um so you know yeah she might she might she might say that but there's limits to how much she could actually act on that yeah, so you're also saying that the liberal dominant liberal left uh, system is in some ways anti-human. 
Um, yeah, I well, you know, it's it's. I guess it comes down to how you define human. I mean, certainly human nature, we, we don't want to lose sight of the crooked timber of humanity amidst all these, you know, amidst superficial changes. Uh, but, but certainly, I think, I think you, you, know, you can't deny that history and societies have been able to affect human sensibilities, you know, to a certain positive extent you know not not enough that i would say abolish the police or anything like that of course um but you know that it can't do anything um i i think that would that would be that would be too strong i think that would be as uh, as anti-empirical as saying that it can't do anything there's a radio talk show host who had a big influence on my life named Dennis Prager. He would make the following argument, which I present to you for your response. He, he would claim that law school makes a lot of people worse because they substitute legality for morality. So I come from a society, Australia, which is not litigious. So you, if you do something wrong, you, you're expected to fess up. You know, not to keep quiet about your culpability, you know, uh-huh. in case it, it places you in much more danger in litigious uh, ways. So, d- you are the product of a legal education. Is are there common ways that come to mind how a legal education in the United States of America at this time and place makes people? worse in the sense of morally you know less moral because they become better at thinking legally rather than morally and better at uh, navigating around a system more effective say at telling lies uh, you know but doing it in a legal way so that you know you don't get disbarred i mean certainly certainly it could in certain in certain situations um no you know no 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 question but i i think you know i think Hopefully, you know, I think most lawyers understand the distinction. You know, I've certainly have had clients who come up with cases and I say, well, you know, uh, you may have been treated unfairly. I agree they weren't reasonable, but, you know, legally they, they haven't done anything, anything illegal. So, you know, I, I mean, different people will to different degrees allow their professional areas of professional concern to maybe swallow up the rest of their lives to an undue extent to define their overall sensibilities uh to an undue extent but i think there is uh so much so much variation on that front that i would i, I would be quite hesitant to you know may issue a big generalization about the effect of law school Yeah. Now, coming from my own deeply flawed perspective, I think like many people, I often try to, you know, reframe reality in in a way where I'm the hero and, you know, everyone else is not nearly as heroic as myself. And so one of my most common, you know, reactions to my far more successful peers is that these people are careerists. You know, they put their career before everything else. They would never have the courage to do the sort of things that I've done because they don't want to be ostracized. And so as we're talking, I'm just thinking uh, being a careerist is is 
perhaps much more compatible with the liberal left perspective because if you're a trad, there are so many things more important than your career, such as right. your your community. So is that fair? Is, is is careerism? I mean, I'm sure you see that with many of your peers who are not as intelligent as you, you know, haven't produced the work of the quality of you, but, you know, pull in four times the income and have, you know, far more uh, success and honor and status in, in this life. And surely you sometimes also think, you know, bloody hell, you know, a bunch of careerists, you know, totally uh, just uh, towing the line. Any thoughts? Yeah, well, I mean, that that, that is certainly the case. I mean, certainly uh, independence of thought is in this society, it is uh, valued only up to a certain extent and only up to certain contexts. And yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly tempting to try to adopt this sort of, you know, uh, viewpoint. You know, I'm carrying the cross. I have made these sacrifices which they are not willing to make. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's a matter of temperament. You know, I don't know that I, you know, I don't want to indulge in those feelings too much because, you know, for whatever psychological reason, uh, reasons, I have a certain, you know, recalcitrance, which is, you know, forcing me to push back against these institutional structures. And there are others, the careerists, who were just, born without those dispositions and that made life uh a lot uh, a lot easier for them and so you know i can say that's that's not fair but there's really you know at, at a certain point you realize like there's no say it's unfair is at least to you know covertly express a, a hope for some sort of justice in this world at some at some point and there's really nothing to be gained by waiting for such justice and because there's nothing to be gained for waiting for that kind of justice um there's nothing to be gained by being getting moralistic about the careerism or of others careerism is just falling into line falling into line is just default human nature which assumes one form or another in every society so that, that that's why i don't like about the term careerist not that it's inaccurate to say that people who just kind of meld into their environment will do will do better but it sort of suggest that it's a particular kind of priority or value system or ideology when in reality that's just like default human behavior and not being careerist not falling in a line for whatever reason which you can or maybe might not be able to articulate that is simply a fate which befalls you know certain people befalls me and you try to uh to to deal with that and sure I, I hope, in the back of my mind, I can't deny, I hope that sort of my book will finally attract enough attention, you know, before I die, that I can look back and I can announce, haha, you know, I was not a careerist, ergo, I did not achieve X, Y, and Z, but, but this book redeems it all, and everybody recognizes that it redeems it all. That would be wonderful if I could do that, you know, before, I, at my deathbed. Uh, ideally before I reach my deathbed, but 
maybe not. And so I have to just resign myself to the possibility that the from a, from the van, vantage point of uh, conventional social status, uh, the careerists will have a, a a leg up on me until the end of my days. I don't want to highlight it as a problem because I just because I want to accept it. Okay. Okay. I, I got thing. it. I got it. So, but my my deeper point is that careerism is hardly compatible with a traditional perspective on life. Careerism is an individualist perspective on life, which is largely incompatible with the traditional perspective on life. The traditional perspective on life, in, as I understand it, primarily is that we're not primarily individuals. We are members of tribes, groups, communities, uh, nations. And so once you recognize that you're not primarily an individual, but you're a member of a tribe, group, community, or, or nation, then putting your own career first as your top priority is just incompatible with that understanding of yourself as, as part of a, of a tribe. And so but, go ahead. Uh, but I, I would say, but I think that uh, careerism involves its own tribalism, you know, it, it's in the abstract, it's a very individualistic uh, attitude, but to be a successful careerist, you have to become attuned to how the tribe thinks, um, and, and not just in a calculating sense. You really need to absorb its sensibilities uh, on a on a reflexive level. Uh, so, yeah, that's a that's a great point. So it, it really, you know, that's that's something that I sort of I highlight. Yeah. In, in I think all of the the works which you've read, which is the the covert surreptitious tribalism and conservatism of the liberal elites, you know, the, you you have these human content constants, and they're going to get expressed one way or the other. Yeah. Now, uh, when you look at Sam Bankman Freed and his mother and his father, I think it'd be be fair to say just from an outsider perspective, these are careerists. However devoted they are to their family, these very clearly seem to be people who put their career before everything else. Um, yeah, I mean, you kind of, you kind of have to be. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, but I mean, in, in, in their minds, you know, they're not, they're not uh, putting career above family because, part of their role as family members, as mom and dad, is to uh, transmit the correct career sensibilities to their offspring. So, you know, to their, to their minds, uh, it's all reconciled. Yeah. And another thing I'm thinking about as we're talking is that also from a liberal left perspective, not only is punishment a dirty word, but vengeance is a dirty word, while more people in a traditional society are quite at ease with vengeance. We we even understand and are fine with every form of punishment contains an element of vengeance. I'm fine with that. Every form yeah. of punishment contains an element of vengeance. I am fine with appropriate levels of vengeance, but from a liberal left perspective, that is retrograde and primitive and the sort of bigotry that we should, you know, seek to rise above. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's a it's a uh it's one more. It's it's one more form of uh, bigotry uh, founded on a lack of understanding of natural 
causality. Yeah, that would be that would be like sort of one of a whole collection of views that you know to refer to conservative claims of cultural oppression that they would identify with the, the 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 poorest self, sort of an embedded self, which is sort of subject to the stimuli of its immediate environment and its own emo- powerful uh, powerful emotions. Yeah, they see that as sort of a a uh, they see retribution as appealing to a less evolved sensibility. They certainly believe that. Yes, and when a, a trad encounters a story like Sam Bankman Freed, he expects human frailty. I expect human frailty. I expect fraud. It, there's nothing remotely surprising to me about you know this this you know fraud coming along like when when yeah. when the news hit like there was nothing nothing shocking because that's what we expect from human beings like i expect everyone to try to take as much as they can while still feeling righteous so <laughs> that that's like one of the most common i think analyses of you know how much will people steal at work they will steal not everything they can get they will steal as much as they can still feel good about themselves and so right. I, I think that's a traditional perspective on life. I'm just wondering what what's the what's the liberal left uh, quintessential reaction to the, the Sam Bankman Freeds of the world. I, I suppose it would primarily be about we need better regulation. Um, yeah, they're gonna say, they're gonna say we need better better regulation. Though I mean I don't I don't know that it's yeah I don't know how persuasive it is because you know if they went into their computer system and they purposely created mechanisms that obscure what was actually going on, uh, that's, that's the sort of thing that's quite, quite hard to, uh, to regulate. Um, I, I, I think, you know, uh, I, I, I read uh, Larry Kramer saying, you know, like everybody who knows them, they can't, you know, imagine they would be, uh, they would be involved with this. So they're not, they're left with not really the most uh, impressive explanations. They have to say shit happens. They have to say you know, uh, yeah, yeah, a bad apple. He went he went bad. He broke bad. Um, they uh, um, they have no no framework by which to explain the phenomenon other than uh, other than individual individual dereliction. You know, Barbara Freed herself wrote. In that article, you know, I mean, she was she's thinking, you know, uh, people's backgrounds determine their later criminality. You know, she was not thinking about herself <laughs> or her family. She's thinking about, you know, the, the 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 inner city, no no father, you know, problems set in from day one, et cetera, et, et cetera. But you know, likewise, you know, was it was it? Uh, can we can we say by that same token that maybe Sam Bankman-Fried? doesn't deserve too much blame or doesn't deserve all the blame he's getting because it wasn't his fault that he was born into this uh, elite, elite culture and, 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 and had this, you know, arrogance fostered in him, you know, bit, bit by bit. So one of the most 
you know, ridiculous parts of the modern liberal left elite uh, worldview from my perspective is this notion of, of human rights that extend beyond the, the nation state. I mean, the, the idea that there's any such thing as like global human rights, universal human rights, that or the, in the De- Declaration of Independence, you know, that each man is, you know, were inalienable rights just seems like the most ludicrous thing in the world because from Trap's perspective, there are no rights beyond those that are guaranteed by a particular nation state. State, which are backed up by the power of the sovereign of that nation state and its you know ability to do violence against you know those who would would threaten those those rights but when we're talking about Sam Bankman Fried's world and the and the crypto world it it's almost like a subset of universal human rights when you hear Joe Bankman talking in that FTX you know interview that we're going to be after essentially you know guarantee these basic human rights such as to a checking account to to people and you know do it do it around around the world from from a trap perspective there are no rights beyond what the, the sovereign the, the nation state can extend to its uh-huh. citizens which you know will constantly be changing depending upon the circumstances a- any thoughts well, I think I, I remember that uh, I read, uh, you know, uh, Joe Bankman, uh, I think a lot of even though he was he was involved as the FTX video indicates in the inception of FTX and getting its first legal department in there. Later on, he was more involved in sort of the, you know, the charities and, um, you know, they gave out some prizes to like these these kids. And the whole idea was that we're going to we're going to you know, kids who maybe are not well enough connected to have banking accounts, they can have accounts here with uh, FTX. And some of them put that money in there and then it was lost uh, when, when they filed for bankruptcy and froze and froze all, all the assets. And uh, apparently from what I read, Joe Bankman did actually like use his, uh, some of his own money, like some $30,000 to, compensate those kids and i can think like what would drive him to do that well just like the the huge uh embarrassment of being out there and saying here i will you are from a disadvantaged background but here i have the remedy to help you and then as a result of their kids machinations those those poverty-stricken kids are even worse off than they were uh initially uh quite 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 the irony uh and so yeah i mean that does highlight what i think you're referring to which is this very uh hobbesian hobbesian world uh where intentions either don't count for anything at best at best they don't count for anything at worst they are the very opposite of what they of what they appear yeah, I mean, this idea that you can create a financial instrument independent of the nation state uh, just does does not, you know, accord with a traditional perspective on life. I mean, we, we, we see the nation state as that which determines rights, which determines, uh, you know, value. It's like what, yeah. what determines the value of the United States dollar is, you know, the United States government with its nuclear weapons and, you know, its its ability to commit violence. Yeah, for, oh, for sure. You know, the, the whole idea of Bitcoin strikes me as uh, completely ridiculous. And, and, you know, in the wake of uh, the whole scandal, I sort of, you know, looked around YouTube to look at this Bitcoin culture. And they're like, you know, 
this is going to protect you from, you know, inflation. The federal government will just devalue your money. And it's like, yeah, so we've had like some undue inflation for the first time in like 40 years went up to 9% versus Bitcoin, which like in a matter of like a few weeks or a few months lost 80% of its value. Uh, it seems like an absolutely crazy, crazy notion. I'm, I'm glad I, I've never invested any money in, in, in Bitcoin or any other virtual currency. And I'm going I'm to continue to do just do just just that. Yeah, I mean, from a trap perspective, you never get to graduate from the, the nation state, <laughs> whether it's financial instruments, uh, human rights, you know, it, it all comes down to the power of a particular sovereign nation state to do violence. Without that, you've got bupkis. Oh, for sure. You know, I mean, you have to look, you've got to be grateful, you know, living in the U.S., you know, where you are. I mean, there's lots of places where you're relatively safe, but you are really the, uh, the, the the most uh, the most the most safe safe here yeah and whether and if you don't live in one of these one of these places that can fend for itself then it yeah it's all it's all uh, it's, it's a matter of luck of whether your your interests happen to coincide uh, with those of the uh, of the great powers you know as they do in Ukraine you know elsewhere they may not and then then you get then you got a problem have you heard from any of your peers, anyone you went to Stanford with, any academic legal elites on your memoir, any particularly you know, interesting feedback that you've received on your memoir from people within that elite world? Yeah, well, you know, I, I, can't, I can't mention his name, but certainly I got contacted by another former fellow. He was a fellow much more recently uh, than I was. Uh, but he he likewise experienced you know a good deal of tension with uh, with Joe Bankman and uh, with with um, Stanford Law School generally uh, as of this other girl who he knew and they, they he told me they both they both read it and it, you know it was a kind of a cathartic uh, release you know finally someone has like gone out there and like spoken spoken our truth to the world uh, so you know that that's that's always a good feeling, um, you know, as far as um, I've got somebody who's writing a book on uh, the whole thing. Uh, I think I'm going to speak to her tomorrow. Uh, aside from that, you know, I've gotten I've gotten kind of uh, weird uh, feedback on my Amazon reviews like this, this, this latest one. <laughs> It was written by this guy. He's a he's a he's a. I looked up his name. He's a Stanford uh, JD, has a PhD from Michigan, teaches at this intellectual properties institute in uh, in in Syracuse, and he's like, you know, I get a one star. He says he read the whole thing, and he's comparing me to Brett Kavanaugh. <laughs> like, I'm in that vein, like, you know, I was like, what the hell? Have you really read the book? It's just like so out of left field. You know, <laughs> like when you when you read the book, like I think you speculated, like you know, it sounds like you might be paranoid, schizophrenic. You know, well, there at least, like I, I understand where you're coming from, at least. Like there's like sub, it's it's based in something. Whereas this is, it just seemed like he was trying to find some sort of random disparagement. So I don't know what's going on there. You know, yeah. Uh, that 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 was really weird. So. I don't know, you know, hopefully my YouTube uh, channel will help me get, get my name out there a little, a little bit, 
but uh, even the negative reactions that I've received are sometimes, you know, very, very strange. I'm wondering if there's another area in this story where the liberal left uh, perspective is more vulnerable, and that is in the area of reputation. So as someone who does not believe in, you know, any rights that are not guaranteed by an army, I, I understand that my reputation does not belong to me. You know, my reputation belongs in the minds of other people, and it's not mine. And yeah. while while people with a more right-centered worldview, which does seem to be the liberal left worldview, they do seem to have much more of a delusion about, you know, rights to their reputation. And so this would be like very, very um, disturbing for someone with that kind of worldview if they get thrown into a maelstrom like the, the Sam Bankman Free. Like, I understand my reputation doesn't belong to me. While I'd rather have a good one than a bad one, I have, you know, absolutely no power over it. There's no, you know, there's no uh -huh. way that I can control my reputation because it's not in my hands. My reputation's in your head and your head and your head and your head. While the the rights perspective on life must be incredibly disturbed by you know these sorts of turns of event when when they they must fight against the recognition that their reputation does not belong to them. Yeah, no, that's uh, you know I, I I have to say that uh, even though you know I I. I critique like the very idea of meritocracy in my book. Still, you know, having been in, in an academic environment for so long, I, I've certainly absorbed uh, certain, you know, arguably delusional expectations about one's one's merits being uh, being being recognized, and, um, and and maybe an over over idealized. Uh, view of pe other people's uh, intellectual honesty. So you know, I have to. It shouldn't. It shouldn't shock me at all that some guy's just reaching for whatever negative thing he can find to write down. Uh, you know, plausible, plausible or not. Um, yeah, but I, I, I would like to absorb that uh, that stoicism. I think I've I've learn how to do that uh, to a significant extent in the uh you know like the, the the nine months since the book was uh was was released you know i've got i've got no control on you know who the next reviewer on amazon is it could be the most terrible thing in the world there's nothing there's nothing i can do about it um but uh yeah if you, if you come you come from an academic background and i guess that would that would be sbf as uh as well, yeah, you do think you have a uh, a right a right to your to your good good name, whereas yes. as you point out, it's really the the, the last thing you have any control over. <laughs> I mean, it just I mean, just it must be so many shocks to the to the elite liberal left worldview to to go through an experience like this. Um, what was your experience like rereading your your magnum opus, the the one on? Uh, the, the, the conservative claims of cultural oppression. What was it like? So, you, you you hadn't read it really in five years or so. Yeah, and I, I'm not I'm not through the whole thing yet. I'm actually like on page uh, four sixty through four eighty out of like uh, six eighty seven hundred. So I'm about uh, about two two thirds of the way through. I haven't looked at it in five years. 
Um, and so, you know, right now, I mean, I think you're right. I think it's it's pretty close to publication. I'm going I'm going through it. I'm you know there is some repetition. There is some uh, unnecessary verbiage. So I'm I'm going through there and just like cleaning cleaning that up, but making the language a little bit more more direct. Uh, but uh, I I feel I feel pretty good about it. Like by and large, it still it still makes makes sense to me. Uh, yeah. this, this this many years later, so I'm gonna r- run through it a few times. You know, I I'll, I'll self publish it again if, if 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 need be. I'm not gonna you know spend spend years at the at the uh, doorsteps of publishers trying to trying to find somebody who's interested. If I do, I do. I, I remember when I self published a book. I, I was gobsmacked. The overwhelming dominant reaction. That I got when when people found out I self published a book was how do you plan to market it? <laughs> I don't know. Is that like is that being like a primary reaction that that you've received to your memoir? I'm just shocked that like you know probably three dozen people asked me that question. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I I I for you know for most for most people, um, most people who publish even with fairly large publishing houses are responsible for their own for their own marketing and um you know if you're stephen king then maybe the publishing house is going to pick up the tab but you know i i found out you know i i definitely did try to market it i had ads on facebook on various uh, online literary journals you know i put out some press releases so I did. I did some things which got the book some 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 attention, but at, at the end of the day, you know, it's it's going to have to be marketed organically, like from person to person, maybe through my YouTube videos. But there's really um, there's not much that I can do. Like, you know, the amount of money, you know ads make no sense at all i mean the amount of money i have to spend on ads relative to the increase in sales it's a it's a total dead end so you know it's i i i found some marketing routes i don't know whether a marketing professional could have found something better maybe maybe not it might just be like owing owing to the nature of the book you know not everybody's going to leap on it and it's going to just take word of mouth trickle trickle from one person to the next and you know hopefully eventually it'll 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 spread it'll spread that way um i don't i don't know that i would be better off if i was part of a big publishing house because you know a lot of those books don't sell very well either i don't i don't know i have no idea yeah yeah okay any questions that i should ask you that i haven't asked you um I think I think that's good. Um, you know, we're still at the early stage. His trial is uh, is next next fall. Um, I would just say, you know, the S- SBF route it has created some uh, some interest, but I still think that the the nature of the book presents an, an uphill challenge. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it's so important. I mean, particularly the magnum opus, the, the conservative claims of cultural oppression that that just changed the, the way I understood reality in, in in ways that no book has done for for many years. It is absolutely your magnum opus 
Would you? I appreciate you that. You know, yeah. I mean, I always saw the memoir as sort of a way to, you know, draw attention to it. Now that it has, I mean, it has its own merits, and like writing it is is fun. But yeah, in terms of the level of theory, that's all in a conservative claims. Yeah, just uh, just a mammoth book. I've had a hell of a time marketing it to people. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. It, it's so good so important but it is it is hard work it's not you know it's not a, a beach book for sure <laughs> okay i'm gonna move on with a solo show for a while so uh ronnie thanks for coming on the show it's great to talk well to you thanks again. for having me again and let's uh let's stay in touch and talk, talk again good. in a while sounds good sounds great right. okay thank you okay thank you see you luke take care ronnie take care, take right. care. okay i want to play an excerpt here this is the decoding the gurus Professors uh, Chris Cavanaugh and Matthew Brown. Matt. Matt. Come on, Matt. Okay. So, the oh. are you back? <laughs> I, I randomly invited other people um, to try and cover for you. But um, can you hear me? Just come on, guys. I, I, I can hear you. The... I'm sorry. I'm just trying to turn my video off. I didn't get that's the... That's all right. Okay. Don't worry if you can't, Matt. And, I didn't get the timestamp right. I don't have an Australian accent. Oh, look. Oh, I get reverberation. I can no. hear myself again. Oh, come on. Guys, get on to my the side. Point. Maybe in your... <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. That's horrifying. Uh, you're, you're Australian as well? Yeah. So come on. That, the, before I forget, I'm going to mention this guy's name. There's a guy called Jim Newman, and he had a conversation with Sam Harris, like a two-hour conversation on the app. Nobody will know who Jim Newman is because he's a very minute... Uh, no, you're not on screen and influential hog dealer. Um, your connection is not working. Oh, damn, I got the at least timestamp wrong. This button. Individual. There's just a collection of cells and experience. That, uh, I noticed, Kirsten, you did. You disappeared yourself. I'm alone again. Um, I think. If I, <laughs> Come on, guys. I'm trying to run a professional show here. Button and he can reappear. But um, both say that they both know what the other one is saying, but the other one is kind of wrong because the only person that's right is it's them. And if you agree with them, you can't have a different opinion. So it's like two people with that perspective. And it's, it's like maddening to listen to because they, they just like any time that they, they want to point out a thing, one of them will slip to saying that, you know, there is no real, like if you get angry at something, what happens? But then one will say, well, but anger doesn't actually exist. Anger is not a thing. And then the other one, well, okay. Yeah, we agree. Anger is not a thing, but it's, like there's an experience of anger and then the other one will say, well, but experience is a word that means something happened, but nothing happened. And it's like two hours of that just going right. Wait, I finally understand my notes. I finally understand now the, the timestamp, right? About uh, building, building seven. As a yeah. former Jimmy Dore fan who just hates him now or dislikes his content. Yeah, building seven, World Trade Center. I'd also like to note that it took Neil deGrasse Tyson to tell Joe Rogan that the moon landing was real. Like he had to come on his show and like berate him for two hours before he would finally. <laughs> Did that it. work? <clears throat> Probably not. Yeah, I, I still get on occasion, like any of the conspiracy theories that Joe has supposedly forgotten. As soon as he's in the room with Eddie Bravo or, you know, the right people, he'll just be like, yeah, but man, there are questions about the, you know, building seven and, you know. Uh, so buildings don't fall like that when they get hit by planes. They tip over. <laughs> <laughs> Game over. It's a, they, so, and, Thing, like, I feel like Building 7 and that kind of thing, it's just something you will see flop into... Like, if somebody is talking about Building 7 in a conspiratorial manner, it's a warning sign. Because, like, Eric years ago said something about, you know, 
uninteresting questions. And he was like, what happened with building seven? And there's, there's a book in, or there's a journal article about conspiracy theorists in, uh, psycho in psychology. And it, the title of it is something like what happened to building seven, the psychology of, you know, nine 11 troopers. And it's just like, whenever you see that and you kind of point it out and people are like, Oh, he's just, you know, he's just making a comment in the tweet. And you're like, no, this is, that's the mind. Like, uh, yeah. Just asking questions. Yeah. So, but I, I agree. I'm not that kind of fits your point that, you know, Jimmy Dore, Green, Grant, Glenn Greenwald, Matt Taibbi. I know they're political, but I, I think we should look at them because they annoy me. And, and also Ted's like not fond of Glenn Greenwald. Who's, I don't think anyone is. is. not fond of him. No, but he hates him for like a completely separate reason than most people. Okay. Like, because he, he used to hate Sam Harris and he used to be celebrated because he criticized Sam Harris, right? Uh, like, he, um, so it's, it's funny. Glenn Greenwald is now, I'd say, substantially more right wing than than Sam Harris is. I think, he, I think we should, I think we should cry havoc and uh, do Stephen Pinker. I think we should jump right in. He's, he's, he's a surprisingly polarizing figure. He is, but you, Matt, you know what that will be? That will just be you saying, I don't think he's that bad. And then afterwards, people say, why did you not think he's so bad? He's, he's terrible. Uh, Chris, I have more nuanced takes on that. I have so much nuanced with my take on Pinker. You don't do you like Pinker? Do you like Pinker? Do I like Pinker? Uh, I don't comment on him as a human being, I don't know it, but um, I did, you know, we talked about this. I, I read, for just to take an example, I read uh, uh, Things Are Getting Better book. What's that? Uh, so he's talking about uh, Harvard psychologist Stephen Pinker. Um, better uh, angels. No. Better angels um, and better no, nature. Oh, no. Um, enlightenment now. Ah. Enlightenment now. A similar, similar deal. And, and yeah, you know, it's um, like, you know, and I've heard all of it. But I, and I read it before I was even on Twitter. And I was like, well, here's a pretty boring book, I guess. But it is showing a bunch of statistics, um, showing them on a range of dimensions. You know, uh, the grand arc of human history, things are getting a little bit better. I thought he downplayed the environmental issues and he downplayed inequality. Um, but he sort of away from the ways. Like, I took it to just be like a general sort of antidote to the, um, you know, news cycle, which is that, you know, you know, every, you know, with what fresh hell is this type type thing where everyone feels like, like we're on the verge of a catastrophe. So I, I think that kind of message is reasonably helpful, despite the fact that he has, you know, somewhat complacent neoliberal leanings um so i think people overreact that's my personal take and i'm, I'm happy to be dumped on for it <laughs> I, don't, I i don't think pinker's that like I, i'm not even that bad i think he's generally all right this is the decoding the gurus guys uh chris cavanaugh talking with matthew brown they're both psychology professors good like uh i think he gets sucked in the culture war stuff and andy is a little bit out of touch as the <laughs> You know, it's the bomb. CRT is the bomb, apparently. Yeah, it's very bad. But he, but he's like Hans Rosling had a book called Factfulness. That was essentially the exact same points as Pitger made, and it got much less um, like blowback or attention. I did actually see some like criticisms of it, but I, I think like Hans Rosling is is somebody that's rel you know generally unobjectionable and he's dead now so <laughs> the, the, there's not any any call to revise him but i think if you don't have that much of a problem with what hans rosling is saying i really don't think you have that much issue with pinker but there is the fact that pinker has like flirted with race realism oh, stuff no. with linda godfordson <clears throat> and some comments from in his earlier work so i think that also raises people's hackles like yeah look yeah i think i think that'll play that'll play the case where you know, you know, there's a lack of decoupling. You know, like people know that he's a sort of a. They know his political angle. They know the other things he said that they don't like him for. So it's like zero charity extended on things. And yeah, I think 
So you can hand it to them on some things and disagree with them on other things. They don't have to be like all good or all bad. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree. And I, I, but, but that isn't how the internet works, Matt. <laughs> so, yes. uh, no, I know. Yeah. He's, he, 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 yeah, but he is, it's like, it's surprising how much emotion he evokes in people for it. Like he's wrote a book, I haven't read it. My guess is it's like saying what he usually says, which is science is good and uh, <laughs> like gradual progress is good and whatever. And like the way that Twitter is acting, it's like he's written a book, you know, Mein Kampf for, for rationalists or something. Uh, yeah. But maybe he's just a fun person to dunk on. He is a fun person to dunk on. That's true. Yeah. Hmm. But we're not really talking too much. We should let people have a chance to give their comments, tell us things that they didn't like or did like, or, or, or ask questions or anything. Tell us what to do in the next 12 months. But, um, yeah, so Jimmy Dwyer, look, Matt, that's another vote, by the way. I want to do Jimmy Dwyer. So after we get through these next couple episodes, we will go there. But uh, Kristen or... Okay, here's a little commentary on your friend of mine, Michaela Peterson. And they're like, the, the fact that she can exist as somebody with a following, when all she's doing is telling people to eat meat. <laughs> like, like that, that in itself speaks of something important. But like, Peterson, next. And yeah, there's not much there when it comes... Like, the thing is, I, I, the reaction... Some people asked her to, uh, to cover it, but like they really, Matt and I've listened to a couple of her things and there isn't that much really to, to talk about, but, but I still think she's good to cover because it's kind of like the, the fact that she can exist as somebody with a following when all she's doing is telling people to eat meat. <laughs> like, that, that in itself speaks of something important, but like, it's because her followers Jordan Peterson, right? That's, a, that's the sole reason, but, but that's it. Her followers Jordan Peterson, so she can get thousands of people to follow her to say, like, eat meat. <laughs> oh, she's just. Yeah, yeah, but she's not very, not very good, right? Um, she's just a girl who likes me and, and salt and water. That's, that's, that's the diet. That's, that's what the episode is mainly going to consist of. Um, just like she likes, but you know, maybe I'll go to I, I still think it's really good because she has like an ecosystem, as you said, of people who like other foods, like other, one specific type of meat or, or somebody who likes one other type of food. So it's like, it's a, you wouldn't imagine that people could have a persona just around, I like one type of meat, but yeah, <laughs> here we are. <laughs> yes, Steven Pinker believes different people's, uh, different gifts. He is Mein Kampf for rationalists. I thought that was just a great description. Steven Pinker, Mein Kampf for rationalists. Now, there are people in the world who dismiss and denigrate and deride Bazball, but that is not what we do on this channel. The English cricket team is playing an incredibly exciting new version of Questions? cricket. Sorry, I can't find it. Here we go. Harsha, England baseball is a disgrace to test cricket. What? They're winning test matches. So to begin with, that's the aim. Um, so well done there. They are playing to their strengths because their weaknesses were so glaring that they didn't have a choice. So again, that's really good. They may have changed the game forever. Uh, and like the West Indies and like Australia, uh, it's fantastic to see. You, when you live through a change, um, I think you really start to appreciate more how incredible it is. Um, they've reinvigorated uh, English test fans uh, and a lot of neutral test fans, if being honest. How is this a disgrace? Like, I think it's really, I, I love the, and it's a bit like, I really enjoyed what they did in white ball cricket as well. I love the batting um, side of it because I really like the idea of taking chances based on things being in your favor. So yes, it looks silly when Joe Root reverse paddle scoops a ball to uh, Mitchell and he's out at slip. But I do like the idea of, uh, of Joe Root going, well, wait a minute, there's no one back there. If they're bowling wide of off stump, if I keep playing conventional off stump shots, eventually I might actually hit a ball to one of these fielders or I might slice one there. If I'm going to do that, I might as well take a risk where I know I'm going to hit a boundary. Um, there's a lot of logic to that. Again, when we talk about them Wagner bowling short to them and then backing away and hitting it back down the ground, it's a ridiculous shot. And I'm sure there are going to be occasions when England players are out in test matches playing that shot. But there's also no one at mid on and mid off and they know this guy's going to come in and bowl short to them, right? They are, they are taking uh, educated risks in the way that they play. Their bowling's really interesting. Um, I, I could have actually done something on that and I might do a full video on it. But essentially, they are simplifying their bowling plans. And I think because of Broad and Anderson being so smart and being so old and being so experienced and, and all those different things, I think at times England bowlers had so many different theories. And, and you see it with Broad, especially. We just like, 
maybe your best ball is being you know six foot five and bowling at the top of off stump. You don't need to try all these different things. But it's not how broad went. But they're really, I think they've minimized the kind of options that they have now. And they're just like, okay, we're going to go with this plan, this plan, and this plan. And we're going to back them and see how they go. And again, they've gone really well so far. So, I mean, I find it hard to think that, uh, I, don't, I don't know what on earth your problem could be, Harsha. They're winning. Uh, it's entertaining and it's smart. It's kind of what test cricket should be. You talked about Coley's control percentage. Right. So if you want to understand cricket strategy, you've got to check out this guy's YouTube channel. Just so many great videos. Jared Kimber. Right. It's it's absolute gold. Now you're saying forty. Tell me more about baseball. Stop with all the irrelevant philosophical stuff. I am tired of politics. I am no longer interested in fighting the culture war. I've had it up to here with Donald Trump. Talk to me about baseball. I demand to know more about baseball. It's just overwhelming reaction of my audience. Just so tired of the trivial religious moral issues. People want to know about baseball. What the hell is baseball? All right. Baseball after the English coach, Brendan Baz McCollum from New Zealand. Right. So normally test cricket is a conservative game. Takes place over five days. Rewards patience, defensive technique and temperamental fortitude. I'm reading from the Indian Express over flair, bravado and innovation. Look, I am traumatized right now. I was trying to go to sleep last night. I thought I'd watch a little bit of day three of the second test between Australia and India. And Australia was looking good. They had just lost two wickets. They had 82 runs on the board. All right. They were one run ahead after each team had uh, batted in the first innings. And then in the course of an hour, they lose eight wickets. They, they are bowled out for like 114 runs. And they just get absolutely slaughtered in the second test match in a row by India, which just devastates my sleep. Like, how am I supposed to sleep when five Australian batsmen in their second innings get out trying to sweep the ball? And then you expect me to sleep and carry on like a productive citizen when the Australian cricket team is just an absolute disgrace. Like when Alan Border was the captain, he would never put up with this nonsense. I don't see why you, you start sweeping the ball on, on an unpredictable wicket if you're going to be sweeping the ball right in front of your own in front of you know your own sticks all right in front of your own wicket and and the pitch is turning and unpredictable and you're sweeping five australian batsmen got out sweeping is just there were four australian wickets fell without them scoring one run all right so Test cricket, conservative game, thought to reward patience, defensive technique, and temperamental fortitude over flair, bravado, and innovation, right? Like this show. I mean, this is a show that rewards patience, defensive technique, and temperamental fortitude. You know, leave it to, to PPP and the Kino Casino to give you all the flair, bravado, and innovation that you might want, right? So this is a show that, like a good test cricket batsman, is, is supposed to last long. You know, I just grind my opposition out. The value of a wicket is paramount. The aim of the batter is to stay on the pitch for as long as possible. You know, amassing runs off risk-free shots. It's the bowler's job to attack, to take wickets and move the game closer to its conclusion. Right, it's, a test match is concluded, generally speaking, when both sides have gotten to bat twice. So baseball is a novel approach that tries to shed some of cricket's long-standing assumptions about how to play, specifically the approach to batting. So instead of trying to preserve wickets, Brendan McCullum directed the English players to go for it, scoring as quickly as possible. Right, so 
Wickets are inevitable in cricket, regardless of the approach a batter takes. The right ball can beat even the best player with the most solid defense. Hence, it's logical to try to maximize scoring before that one unplayable delivery arrives. So by attacking the bowlers, who are traditionally the aggressors in the long format of test cricket, batters cause chaos. They put immense pressure on bowling teams, which then are more likely to make mistakes. So Basbort runs the risk of batting teams losing quick wickets and falling for a paltry score, but when it works, takes them to a winning position. So it's been a while since England's had a really good test cricket team. It's been a while since it had a batting lineup that can consistently win games. Now we have Basbort. England is playing the most exciting cricket in the world right now, and we've got the Ashes coming up with Australia touring England coming up in June. So England's white ball, meaning test cricket teams have undergone a revolution after a disastrous 2015 World Cup in the T20 format. Uh, England has completely overhauled their... Oh, white ball setup is, is T20, sorry. <laughs> so they've become very aggressive with the T20 game, which is just uh, 20 overs, takes about three hours, opposed to test cricket match is five days. So they play a test cricket match with the red ball. White ball is... T20, the three-hour version, or the one-day version, which is really like an eight-hour version, 50 overs each. So Basbor borrows a leaf from the England shorter setup, so it's cognizant of the limitations of England's test talent batting pool, place the strengths of the players available, the emphasis on using their T20 and one-day skills, and scoring intent in test match cricket to gain an advantage in a way never before seen in test cricket. So England is scoring more runs at a faster rate than we've ever seen before. Now, can this work long term? So you have a former Indian cricketer saying South Africa shows that Basball doesn't work against a world-class bowling attack with a variety and a sharp captain who sets smart fields. So other people say the pitches that England has played on have been tailor-made for their belligerent brand of cricket. The best test cricket teams play in a variety of ways. They attack when the time is right. They defend when they have to. So this is a flexibility of method. is crucial for consistency against different types of teams in different conditions. So a gung-ho attack so far helped England more than not. So they've been abandoning cricket's old dogmatism. So... What he's trying to do is get failure out of your mind. Just go for it, mate. Sort of like, uh, who's our friend? Who's our friend who's dying? All right, uh, the 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 bloke who's so good with the, the blood sports and the videos, Mr. Matica, all right? So he was asked for life advice, and he said, you know, go for it. Failure is an unavoidable part of life and a part of sport. Basball has seen some failure. It'll see some more, often spectacularly so, due to its all-or-nothing approach. When batters are willing to play aggressive shots, they inherently caught failure at a much higher rate, but aggressive shots also caught more runs. So basball is not just a way to play test cricket. It's a philosophy of life. Right? English cricketing culture hates failure. Now we've got something exciting. Failure inevitably comes. The knives will inevitably come out. But his whole way of playing is to not care. I think players like Pujara and Kohli who play extremely defensively will definitely have a high control percentage but will face more unplayable balls. Well, they won't face more unplayable balls because that doesn't change what the bowlers do. Um, and Kohli isn't a defensive player. Um, 
he's nowhere near one of the more defensive players around. That's uh, the I England, mean, he hasn't scored a lot of recent times. Indian he hasn't scored a lot, but um, his, uh, his first-class record... Oh, man. Record. He's played Test cricket, hasn't he? His Test record, uh, so his strike rate is 55. That is anything anything above 50 is certainly not defensive. Between 45 and 50, you could be a strike rater like Alistair Cook. Um, All right, Jared Kimber there, a little cricket analysis. All right, Robert Wright here talking to Mickey hey, Reynolds. Let me just say, you're right. We lowered our radar threshold for detecting things because naturally we're usually set up to think, detect things that move at the speed of missiles and are the size of missiles and the shape of missiles and so on. Fine. And they decided to lower the threshold, but that's exactly the reason they shouldn't have been shooting him down gratuitously. They should have said to themselves, so this probably means we're going to see some things we haven't noticed before, which probably, and, and besides, there is no scenario in which these things are actually an immediate threat. So the last fucking thing we should do is shoot them down unless we're really freaking out. It is completely inexcusable. And, and, I, and that's, it's also for, it's not directed against China, it's for domestic political consumption. That so how, how, does it hurt, how does it hurt China to shoot down the hobbyist weather balloon? Does it? Well, to the extent that it is for domestic consumption, which part of the overreaction to the Chinese balloon was as well, I want to connect this to the Ukraine war. These guys are terrified of somebody questioning their manhood. This is a longstanding problem with Democrats. They, have, they haven't even, you know, I mean, even though the, the Republican, half the Republican Party now claims it's like on the restrainer side, which is usually not true. But anyway, even though... The poll numbers are amazing, the number of Republicans who oppose aid to Ukraine. I think it's a majority. and It's amazing the number of Americans that oppose aid to Ukraine. That's it's in trouble politically. That's interesting. More, but more than, I'm for aiding Ukraine, so I'm sort of horrified by it. But. Let, me, let me just quickly finish. If you ask why, uh, you know, we still don't know if uh, pre-invasion diplomacy could have averted this whole war. But if you ask, why didn't the Biden administration even try? And by their own account, they didn't. Go, go look up Derek Chollett, the State Department counselor, and what he said. Uh, they made n nothing that could have they could have thought Putin would actually consider a serious attempt at diplomacy. If you ask why they didn't, I think it's fear of people questioning their manhood. Is that what Bennett, is that what Bennett said to Nostalgia Bennett? Did, did he say it was for political domestic? Oh, I, don't political? Think he, I don't think he had a theory. He didn't uh, even quite pin it on Biden. He was ambiguous about which Western leader it is. But clearly, right. we were running the show. He was talking about us. But, but I'm serious. Look, a responsible president in a situation like that doesn't bow to perceived political pressure. And I think that's what they did. It's this long-standing fear in the Democratic Party. And what we what the world needs is a president of the United States who, when it comes to foreign policy, just says, I'm going to do the right thing. And if they don't reelect me, that's life. I, I think I Biden is um, Biden seems especially uh, sort of plottingly sensitive to the politics of it. Uh, I mean, I guess I think he realizes it's a 51-49 country and he can't lose 2%. So he, so he's, he has this sort of heightened fear. Uh, but in, in part, it's just I, I don't understand it. It's, it's a, it, it, it was true under uh, Obama, too. You know, I mean, Shirley Sherrod uh, gives this uh, speech, which the excerpt that Breitbart runs seems to imply that, you know, she's happy she didn't do right by a white farmer. And they fire her that day. They can't afford a second news cycle. Oh, where I, they would I find vaguely out, remember they can, that. They can't afford a second news cycle where they would find out that she later went on to say that she had been wrong. And, of course, she should uh, help the white farmer. Now, that was so, embarrassing. Um, uh, they, they always fire them within one news cycle. Now, remember the it's, guy it's, who got hair fired? The guy in D.C., this was local politics, but he got fired for using the word niggardly, which right. is a word that has yeah. nothing in common etymologically right. with the N-word. Yeah. But that was on, a D.C. government. That was, yeah, a DC that was a government. local thing. And that, took, that dragged on for a few days. I think. That, <laughs> his, job, point, his job no, didn't, I don't think. But, I don't think that the whole point of, the, of, the, of this is that they don't want it to drag on for three days. They want to can the person today and only no, have one I, news cycle. I, it's, we, need, we need politicians who are made but of if you, had, if you had a politician who was 60-40 favorable, they would be in a much stronger position. They wouldn't have to do that. Yeah, but see, my theory is America, secretly or maybe not so secretly, hungers. For somebody who really looks like they're going to say, like they mean it when they say, look, I'm going to do what I think is right. I, I actually think it would play well if they, if they kind of made a thing of it. If they just said, I know this is unpopular, I'm doing it, you know. Uh, well, they, they, politicians do that every now and then. Uh, McCain did it. Uh, Bruce Babbitt did it. Look where it got him. Uh, it, it, it's, um, I think Clinton even did it at some point. So uh, when yeah, he was, delivered the tough medicine to the he, ship workers saying that these manufacturing jobs aren't coming back. Boy, boy, does that not 
sit well with the public now because they're desperate to have those manufacturing jobs back. But at the time, mm -hmm. it was considered, you know, he was laying on straight, giving him the tough love news. So what you said about uh, 60, 40 politicians, can I, can you I use that? that <laughs> yes, especially since you're the one who said it. Yeah, right. OK. <laughs> Nice setup. Uh, that was an excellent setup. Okay, sorry. Um, I set myself up. The uh, uh, Fetterman announced that he's, uh, you know, in in treatment for political depression. Mm -hmm. I assume this means he won't be voting. I wondered about that. Uh, so that Joe Manchin is back in the saddle in the Senate. Uh, but I don't think there are any huge votes planned for the next few weeks when he's going to be in the hospital. And of course, they didn't. They weren't transparent. They, they're getting praised for their transparency now, but they weren't transparent before November eighth, uh, when he could easily have, the Democrats could have said, "Okay, your wife runs. You can run when you're." You well, he, take wasn't, over, he wasn't you know, clinically depressed then, presumably. Uh, no, apparently he was, was a recovering it was mixed stroke up. patient. It was you know, apparently the depression was mixed up with stroke recovery. If you but read the New York Times story today, you mean he was depressed before the election? Yeah, it was a mixture of depression and stroke recovery. It was like not. It was a you know he was there were signs of depression before the election. Yes. Do we know uh, how the stroke recovery per se is proceeding? Has he gotten better at all? I don't know. The, the, the Times story says that maybe by continuing to run and not dropping out, he laid he set back his recovery. I, I don't know about stroke recoveries at all, except that. Strokes are a bad thing because if you have one stroke, you're more apt to have another stroke. But there are a lot of people who recover and then don't have another stroke. So why couldn't he be one of them? Uh, I, so I don't know. I assume I assume the recovery is now mixed up with the depression, so it's hard to tell how it's going, right? Yeah. Uh, the but the, but the point is, uh, I think the story is not about Fetterman; it's about Biden, because it shows that if you let possible medical risks, if you say, okay, it's all going to turn out, we're going to ignore this medical risk. Sometimes you get burned, and the medical risk comes to fruition. Uh, and uh, you know, Biden had this. I, I think the testimony of the State of Union is sort of hard to rebut. He seemed all there, and the, you know, you know, whatever drug they gave him worked that day, and then I guess it wears off. But uh, also, have... a drug that will get you through a speech, even if there's a couple of ad libs in response to hecklers, is not the same as a drug that will get you through a debate with Ron DeSantis, or even maybe Trump. Oh, I think the but... Biden of the State of the Union could have gotten through a debate with Ron DeSantis. Nikki, give Wouldn't a necessarily was. Come but... on, this is a debate is a totally different game. Are you kidding? It, 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 I thought you were going to say it's not going to get into a day of hard policy making, uh, but you don't care about that. Uh, no, I care. I, oh, no, you care. You care that you want to so win. That... Okay, so that uh, shooter in Pico Robertson, who hated Jews apparently because he blamed uh, Persian Jews for the spread of COVID. Apparently, this guy was influenced by the Goyim Defense League. So he, on successive days, he shot Jewish men walking out of synagogue. He was expelled from dental school after distributing Goyim Defense League flyers. Blaming COVID on Jews. So he's been homeless for a year. He sent hundreds of anti-Semitic messages to his fellow classmates, continuing to threaten them. So there, there is a subset of people who just, you know, hate Jews or hate, you know, high-achieving groups because they're losers, right? This guy, homeless for a year, sent hundreds of anti-Semitic messages to his fellow classmates, continuing to threaten them. And... He was arrested for felony possession of a firearm and also making numerous threats to kill people. But the Los Angeles district attorney released him without bond, without bail. And he goes off and shoots two Jews leaving their synagogue prayer service. So if L.A. District Attorney George Gascon had not been so lenient with a man obsessed with hating Jews, two Jews would not have been shot. Can they pursue, these men who are shot, can they pursue legal charges against our DA, George Gascon, for failing to protect the people of Los Angeles and putting his you know, radical policies over public safety? So the Democrats are all about gun control for Republicans, but they're not nearly as interested in enforcing laws 
for regulating who can possess firearms against their own voters. And as a result, hundreds of people are getting slaughtered. Now let's get some uh, Mickey Kaus here on Tupac. Probably wondering, what does uh, Mickey think about Tupac? Um, of the Philip Marlowe character. Um, As if the world needed that. <clears throat> that's my question. I, I mean, th 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 this is genre busting for the sake of genre busting. I mean, I think that's why I didn't like Breathless. Is like, what's the point of this? If it's not, if I don't find it amusing and entertaining in its own right, uh, I'm afraid I don't have time for this. And some people do, I guess. But um, did you ever watch the rest of The Long Goodbye? Not yet, no. You still don't know the surprise ending, so I won't mention it. I don't know the surprise ending. Okay. Um, I, I've been, I, I'm afraid I've been lured away by slow horses. Uh, well, check out the hip. Do you have the PBS? So I've been re-watching the great HBO show Winning Time. I read the book twice, Showtime, about the Los Angeles Lakers of the 1980s by Jeff Pullman. Everything he writes is so compelling. And he, I'm just about to read his, his new book on Bo Jackson, the, the great... Uh, Oakland Raiders running back who also played Major League Baseball, just a phenomenon of the what mid mid nineteen eighties. But uh, Winning Times, the HBO adaptation of the the Jeff Pellman book on the nineteen eighty Los Angeles Lakers, it is so good. I'm watching it for the second time. That's uh, like app or streaming app or whatever. I think you can get it for free. Mm, okay. The PBS channel. You should check out the hip hop thing. You find that interesting, right? We could talk about. It. Whoa! I got a ten dollars super chat, but uh, I got a really it's a compliment. Thank you. Luke, I read your blog about your dad passing in 2019. It was very moving. I don't know any other live streamer who would share so much about their life. You're a wise and honest man. Thank you. Well, thank you. So my, my not very nice reaction, dominant reaction, not just to my dad's passing, but also several other people I've known, such as uh, uh, Mark Kramer, an eccentric writer out of New York. My, my immediate reaction was one of relief. I wasn't close with my father. I just felt that was the primary thing I felt was, was relief. And some other difficult people I've had in my life, when I found out that they died, my primary reaction was relief. I, I have watched the film Biggie and Tupac by Nick Broomfield. See, I'm wondering how they'll the, handle the Tupac. I assume they'll get into the killing and everything, right? They have to. Well, this, yes, but there's so many mysteries around that. They have to adopt one theory or the other. Yeah. Uh, the um, the thing about Tupac is that I hate about him is he's basically a middle class guy who taught himself to be a thug. Yeah. No, we want we want people. I mean, there's this whole there's this whole horrible strain of hip hop where you know you're it's a it's a outgrowth it's similar to identity politics. If you become a normal middle class integrated American, you are betraying your race and your roots, and right. you know and, and that's bad. So so Tupac who was you know on the way to becoming a normal middle class American and wanted to be the Frank Sinatra of hip hop had to had to adopt sluggish ways just to to give himself authenticity. You know, that's that's not the way you, you want to go in the other direction. You want to stop being sluggish. And, so, you know, do, do we know why he was killed? There was some kind of East West dispute. There was like East East Coast powers right. in the hip hop world and West Coast powers or something. Yes. And what, and what happened? That, Biggie had, Biggie was an East Coaster. He'd been killed on the West Coast. So the question was, was this a wait? Biggie Smalls murder? was killed too. Yeah, he's been dead for years. So he was murdered first. He was murdered first, I think. And he was you said he was an East murdered Coaster? outside the Peterson Auto Museum here down the road. And do we know why? No, I don't. The the, the film the film uh. But we, 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 everybody's very suspicious of Suge Knight, the head of Death Row Records, hmm. who is uh, actually, he was on trial for a murder. I don't know what happened to him. He may have been convicted for another murder, but he's obviously very thuggish. And uh, so he might have, There's a, I think there's a theory that he murdered both of them. There's a crazy, there's a really weird theory that even though he was riding in the car with Tupac when Tupac was shot and killed, that he ordered the hit. And they just said, aim carefully, don't hit me, hit Tupac. So, mm -hmm. uh, which would be a pretty ballsy thing to do. I think 
Connie Brooks piece in the New Yorker suggested that that Suge Knight was behind it. Uh, that this, this piece, this movie by Nick Broomfield opened, a, it was, it was, an, it was, there were two mind blowing aspects. One, it opened a window in this whole world of LA black ex-cops mm-hmm. who were, had a sort of a network and they were all really good looking, really smart and completely amoral. And it was just terrifying. So they could have done it. They provided protection to people. Uh, and the other thing is it had an interview with, with Suge Knight in San Quentin, not San Quentin, whatever prison he was in, maybe San Quentin, very tough prison. And he goes, uh, and so he goes to interview Suge Knight in prison and his cameraman is scared to show up. So the cameraman doesn't show up. So he's carrying the camera himself. And he's scared to go ask Suge Knight for the interview. Uh, mm-hmm. So the warden says, okay, I'll go and I'll negotiate for you. And he goes over, talks to Suge Knight, comes back and says, okay, Suge will talk to you if you let him give his message to the kids uh, at the end of your interview. And so Broomfield says, okay. And then they have the interview. At the end of the interview, and Broomfield says, okay, you can give your message to the kids now. So Suge Knight says, you know that Snoop Dogg? He's walking around on the streets, a free man. You know, the cops wouldn't let him do that unless he was a school pigeon. And you know what we do to school pigeons, don't you, kids? And they, pub- <laughs> and they published that? I mean, it wasn't well, no, a lie. That's part of the movie. He agreed. That was it's incredibly revealing. You put it in your movie, too. Uh, uh, well, but... In addition you, to be kind of hilarious. But aren't you kind of responsible if anything happens to the guy? True, but he's... Still- no, you're not responsible. You're not primarily responsible. If something happens to the guy, that's primarily on the people who do the, the, the bad thing but you're not without any responsibility. Okay, let's uh, think a little bit about the temptations of Carl Schmitt. Schmitt's own ethnocultural conception of the friend-enemy distinction would itself be more than sufficient to help push Germany into denying humanity to its enemies, and so ultimately seeking their total annihilation. In his public writings before 1933, the enemy that Schmitt portrayed as facing Germany and the Germans was always communism and the Bolsheviks. Schmitt would forever maintain that his mission had merely been to protect the constitutional state and to save Europe from the Russian danger, which was the greatest external threat to Germany. But, as in the minds of many Germans... Right, you may think you hate Group A, but if Group B becomes more of a threat to you than Group A, then uh, Group A will, will fade from your mind. Right? The enemy is he who threatens your very existence. And when that such an enemy rises into view, all other considerations have to take a backseat. ...of the time, Schmidt's view of the communist threat and the seemingly complicit weakness of liberalism began to blur together over the course of the 1920s with what he perceived to be an even greater, if more shadowy, enemy, the transnational Jew. Schmidt had always feared and hated Jews and admired them for their success and despised himself for admiring them. He agonized in his diary over his Jewish complex, feeling an inadequate pleb compared to his Jewish academic colleagues, but simultaneously superior to them and cheated out of proper recognition and status while working in their shadow. Oh, that sounds really, really bad. But all those emotions, uh, many, many Jews have them too. Which was the greatest external threat to Germany. But as in the minds of many Germans of the time, Schmidt's view of the communist threat and the seemingly complicit weakness of liberalism began to blur together over the course of the 1920s with what he perceived to be an even greater, if more shadowy, enemy, the transnational Jew. Schmidt had always feared and hated Jews. Yeah, and guess what? There are Jews who have always feared and hated non-Jews. And admired them for their success. Yes, and there have been Jews who've admired non-Jews for their success. And despised himself for admiring them. And there are Jews who have despised themselves for admiring non-Jews. So this isn't something, you know, that's complex and uh, unique just to Carl Schmitt. He agonized in his diary over his Jewish complex. Guess what? Plenty of Jews have agonized over their Goyim complex feeling an inadequate pleb compared to his Jewish academic colleagues. 
and plenty of Jews have felt inadequate compared to their non-Jewish colleagues. But simultaneously superior to them. And plenty of Jews who have simultaneously felt inadequate compared to non-Jews around them, but simultaneously feeling superior to them. Right? We're complicated. And cheated out of proper recognition and status. Yeah, and plenty of Jews have felt cheated out of their proper recognition and status while working in the shadow of the Goyim. Status while working in their shadow. He felt constantly persecuted. The Jews attacked. Yeah, most uh, or many people feel constantly persecuted. Attack me in all the journals, and no one notices what is going on. He raged in 1925. Yeah, and plenty of Jews have felt like, oh, the non-Jews, the Goyim, constantly attacking me. No one notices what's going on. He worked to sabotage the advancement of Jewish professors at the universities where he held positions, writing to savage the candidacy of one disgusting, craven dilettante Jew, before he could be appointed alongside him at the University of Bonn, for instance. He left Bonn for Berlin in 1928, in part because he wanted to escape all of the Jews that lurked there, allegedly holding him down, and find a clean life somewhere free from them. And is it possible that there were some important Jews there who were working against his career interests? His Jewish complex seems to have been at least in part related to his near-constant money troubles. Much of his work was prestigious but unpaid, and he was a hopeless spendthrift. Yeah, this is kind of taking the assumption that there weren't some fundamental conflicts of interest between German Jews and German non-Jews. Right? I'm not an expert on Weimar Germany, but there may indeed have been fundamental group conflicts. It may not just have been you know, psychological illness that uh, compelled Karl Schmitt to think as he did. He was constantly in debt, to the point that he more than once recorded thoughts of escape through suicide. Yeah, a lot of people have thought about escape through suicide from their debts. A lot of people thought about, you know, offering themselves life is hard. He came to fear and loathe financiers, whom he considered analogous with Jews. He perpetually labored under the weight of a fear of the Jews, fear of my debts, as he recorded in his diary on April 29, 1929. By the end of 1932, he had become radically anti-Semitic, beginning to sever all contact with his former Jewish students and friends, such as the young Leo Strauss, whose work on Hobbes he had once said he found a pure joy to read. And guess what? There are plenty of Jews who have, say, become Orthodox Jews who have then severed all contact, you know, meaningful contact with non-Jews. For example, if you are an observant Orthodox Jew, it's uh, difficult to eat and drink and fraternize with, with non-Jews. So it's not surprising that people go through stages in their life where they are more or less open to outgroups. His work would soon begin to frame the Germans' enemy as something well beyond the communists and the Russians. The German nation was now engaged in an existential battle against the Jewish spirit. It was a view that he would retain for the rest of his life. As he noted in his personal diaries well after World War II was over and Nuremberg was behind him, his fundamental conclusion was that Jews always remain Jews. And that's the fundamental worldview of traditional Jews, that Jews always remain Jews, no matter how outwardly assimilist. While a communist can improve and change, the true enemy is the assimilated Jew. Ultimately, Schmidt sees... So the founder of the American Nazi party, flanking on his name, he had no problem with Orthodox Jews. It was the assimilated communist Jew that he had a problem with. He seems to have understood the consequences of the politics advanced by his friend-enemy distinction quite well. The idea of ethnic identity, he predicted in 1933, will pervade and dominate all our public law. Well, ethnic identity, blood-based identity, has dominated human identity for thousands of years. It's not something that just developed in 1933 Germany. 
He joined the Nazi party the same year. Yeah, after the Nazis took power and the best way to get ahead was to associate with the Nazis. But about three years previous, he was all for banning the Nazi party and banning the Communist Party. So people have different perspectives depending on changing circumstances and internal changes. Secularizing the theological. Despite its fame, the concept of the political is arguably not the work most important to understanding the true spirit of Carl Schmitt. That distinction may instead fall to a lecture he delivered in Spain in 1929 titled The Age of Neutralizations and Depoliticizations, which consolidated the key ideas he had been drawing on for at least a decade. The lecture, which Schmidt later had appended to the end of the 1932 edition of the concept of the political, is short but to the point. He argues that over the previous half millennium the West has gone through a series of phases, each roughly a century long, in which the central domain animating human society, and which constituted Europeans' concept of truth, italics in the original, shifted to take on a specific overarching character. The 16th century was fundamentally structured around the theological, with God and the scriptures still core to the spirit of the age. Yeah, but uh, scriptures and God were much less important to Europe in the 16th century than they were, say, in the 11th century. So Europe was steadily secularizing from about the 10th century onwards. The 17th century, the century of Hobbes, not only metaphysically but also scientifically the greatest age of Europe, then shifted to center a metaphysical outlook, a heroic Occidental rationalism as its core organizing principle. Then the 18th century, a vulgarization on a grand scale, jettisoned metaphysics for enlightenment-based rationalism and humanitarian moralism. And in the 19th century, economic thinking came to dominate, propelling the clash between Burgeois liberalism and Marxism to the forefront. Well, I think it's nationalism that came to dominate in the 19th century more than capitalism. Finally, Schmidt believed the 20th century had begun to make technology the central domain. Of these transitions, Schmidt considered the strongest and most consequential of all to be the one in the 17th century from the traditional Christian theology to natural science, given that, until now, this shift has determined the direction of all further development. After that point, in the metaphysics of 18th century deism, God himself was removed from the world and reduced to a neutral instance he became a concept and ceased to be an essence. And with God's sovereignty removed subsequently, first the monarch and then the state became a neutral power, initiating a chapter in the history of political theology of the liberal neutral state, in which the process of neutralization finds its classical formula, because it also has grasped what is most decisive, political power. What ties all of these centuries together for Schmidt is thus that their consistent elemental impulse was the striving for a neutral domain. In every case, Westerners sought to distance themselves from past conflict and struggle and moved in the direction of neutralization and minimalization of the political. And that's what's still going on. That's very much the direction of liberalism, which dominates most of our institutions. Hence why ours is an age of neutralizations and depoliticizations, and why now in reality, as he famously claimed in Political Theology 1922, all significant concepts of the modern theory of the state or secularized theological concepts. Schmidt believed this secularization had reached its peak with the dawn of the 20th century, when there arose a religion of technological progress, which promised all other problems would be solved by technological progress, and the people of the industrialized West turned the belief in miracles and the afterlife 
into a religion of technical miracles, human achievements, and the domination of nature. Thus, a magical religiosity became an equally magical technicity. The 20th century began as the age not only of technology, but of a religious belief in technology. Moreover, this contemporary belief in the technological was based on the proposition that the absolute and ultimate neutral ground has been found in technology, providing a chance to finally achieve perpetual peace in the age of technicity. This trend of secularization and neutralization is one that Schmidt, a man transparently nostalgic for Hobbes' Age of Kings, viewed with disgust and concern, and which he seems to have spent his entire adult life wrestling with. In political theology he had explored how politics had been depersonalized, sovereignty having been steadily removed, first from the divine and then from the monarch, making genuine political decisions more and more difficult. Worse, he wrote with horror, the kind of economic technical thinking that prevails today is no longer capable of perceiving a political idea at all, threatening to transform the state into merely a sort of huge industrial plant as previously envisioned by his countryman Max Weber. Today nothing is more modern than the onslaught against the political, Schmidt lamented. There must no longer be political problems, only organizational, technical, and economic sociological ones. With the loss of the political, modern life was losing touch with the realm of the human, and therefore all of its meaning. Yeah, this rings uh, pretty true. Thus for Schmidt, like for so many today, the deepest problem of life was fundamentally the question of how to deal with what Weber had described as modernity's demagification of the world. Right, th these are themes that I return to again and again. In Sauberung der Welt. Schmidt would, over the course of his intellectual career, seek in all the worst places for a way to re-enchant that world. This was a quest that likely would have been quite a bit simpler and more productive if, for Schmidt, God hadn't been dead. Schmidt would, until his dying day, vociferously defend himself as having always remained a lifelong Catholic Christian. I find this doubtful. Though raised in the church and by all accounts a devout believer in his early years, something in Schmidt's interior life seems to have begun to shift around 1914, when his diary entries started to hint at a crisis of faith. He had just been engaged to be married very young. It already wasn't going well. And he was already broke. As the Great War began and he lost a close friend, he found himself in a dark place. Where should I seek refuge? He asked himself, answering, in the Catholic Church. But I can't. Instead, he cries for advice and help from the quiet, unknown gods, and describes himself as a Gnostic, who could at most believe in a malicious creator of this world. Simultaneously, he wrote, as if determined to delight every future left-wing would be psychoanalyst that he felt the awakening of a misogynist complex within himself. How long these particular sentiments lasted is unclear. But not long after this wartime crisis, a new obstacle would increasingly begin to wedge itself between Schmidt and his relationship with the church, a compulsive, out-of-control sexuality. Right, and this doesn't come from nowhere. I've certainly had long periods of compulsive, out-of-control sexuality, and it fundamentally comes from a lack of normal human connection, right? When I have had a normal, healthy level of human connection, I have not been lost in my addictions. But when you don't have those normal human bonds and you may feel somewhat like you're flailing in life, then we all need to feel comfort. And uh, sexual release for some people like me was 
incredibly comforting. Other people turn to drugs. Other people turn to alcohol. Other people turn to extreme religion. Uh, other people watch a lot of TV or play video games. But if you're not connecting normally with other people, you're going to have to connect with something, be it a substance or a process. And these you know, unhealthy forms of connection tend you to lead one in a downward spiral. That was certainly my experience. Schmidt's married life was characterized by a continuous series of passionate affairs, conducted in the form of almost daily trysts in parks, trains, secluded paths, and other semi-public places that he noted afforded him a particular thrill. Yes, he was living in an erotic state of exception. To this was added a countless stream of prostitutes, to whom seems to have gone much of his money, plus all of the family maids. He describes his deranged sexuality as having transformed him into a kind of maniac, unable to keep himself from following women around in public places as if hypnotized. He diligently kept an exact diary of each of his ejaculations. November 3, 1926, ejaculation. But it wasn't a release. Now, why is this so odd? I'm sure that most people watching the show right now keep a very precise diary of each of their ejaculations. Seems like a very healthy preoccupation. No release without conquest. This behavior would, to his shame, continue even while his second wife was critically ill with tuberculosis. To the reader, his decision to write a doctoral thesis... Why do people think that you know men should stop banging if their wife gets cancer or their wife becomes critically ill? And Oh, how shocking that he would patronize prostitutes while his wife is critically ill. And if a man's not having sex with his wife and the man has a compulsive need for sex that yeah he is going to you know patronize prostitutes he's not going to hold back and say oh i should not have an orgasm i should not do the one thing that brings me comfort and peace right i should not do my favorite thing in the whole world because my wife's got cancer therefore i'm just going to abstain right you'd have to be a righteous man in you know master of your domain to be able to pull that off thesis on the topic of guilt seems to take on new significance. It was his troubled relationships with women that estranged him from the church and from Christianity. Yeah, when I started becoming sexually curious about age eight, right? that's when I started distancing from my childhood dream of becoming a Christian missionary. So the more important sex came to me, uh, the less important God and religion. And then that led me into a downward spiral. So I woke up from that downward spiral in 1989 realized i was in trouble and i saw judaism as kind of a lifeboat and i paddled towards judaism thinking that that could save me from my destructive downward spiral into you know sexual obsession in 1912 young schmidt met a spanish dancer in a vaudeville theater who spun him a tale of being the runaway daughter of an aristocratic croatian lord seduced he defied the advice of all friends and family and married her in 1915. Yeah, if you're a sex and love addict, the power to make wise decisions with regard to sex and love does not reside within you. If you are an under-earner, the power to make wise decisions with regard to earning does not reside with you. If you are an alcoholic, the power to make wise decisions regarding the use of alcohol does not reside in you. When she eventually turned out to be neither an aristocrat nor Croatian, 
but an illegitimate kleptomaniac scamstress from Munich. Schmidt filed for divorce. Shocking. So what's the, the old saw I, I think I heard from one rabbi? Uh, every man that gets married and thinks he's going to bed with Rachel, but he wakes up in the morning next to Rachel, right? So like Jacob in the the, the book of Genesis, he thinks he's marrying Rachel, but uh, his father-in-law has tricked him, and he's instead being stuck with the woman with weak eyes. And he has to work an extra seven years to marry the woman that he wants. So yeah, every every man goes to, yeah, every man goes to, gets married thinking he's going to go to bed with Rachel, Rachel, but uh, he ends up, you know, waking up with Leah. I mean, there is that, that profound, if you're not in a good, solid, loving relationship with a woman and you go to bed with someone who's, uh, say, severely lacking in many areas, there is a feeling of contempt and just grossness and disgust that overwhelms one. I remember there was this very plain, homely, homely woman, and somehow she seduced me. And when it was finished, I just couldn't wait to get out of there. And then the next morning she calls me because she's been in an auto accident. So being, being you know, an old-fashioned Victorian gentleman, you know, I drive over and I pick her up and I take her to the hospital and you know, I look after her. But, you know, every fiber of my being just wanted to run. It's like, how on earth did I go to bed with this woman? Oh, and then sometimes I bang some quite fat women. And my friend said, ah, oh, you know, I lost all, all, all respect for you knowing that you, you know, banged that ugly fat woman. God forbid that they employed such lookism. A civil court in Bonn granted the divorce in 1924. But his attempt to convince the church to annul the marriage failed, an event that left Schmidt filled with great shame and anger. He appealed, but that process had not yet concluded before he'd already fallen for and married the secretary who'd filed his divorce papers. For this act, Schmidt was officially excommunicated from the Catholic Church in 19... Yeah, I think we've all, like, married the secretary who files our divorce papers. That's a very, very common problem for men. 1926. I am completely done with Christianity, he recorded in his diary. From this point forward... Schmidt would abandon a lingering academic interest in experimenting with integrating the religious community of the church as a balancing force between people and ruler, a position he had struck in 1923 in Roman Catholicism and political form. He would instead go in search of new gods. And the chat says, look, there was a decision. Ron Jeremy was found uh, not, not uh, capable of standing trial for rape allegations because of his dementia. So without any knowledge to the contrary, I suspect he really does have dementia. I believe that he really did uh, rape women. And that, that's what I think. So what, what the news says in this instance is what I think is true. And he would find them in technology, in the state, and in the Fuhrer. At the heart of Schmidt's lecture on the age of neutralizations and depoliticizations was a warning to his fellow Germans. While it might be understandable that to most people, technology appeared to be neutral due to its universal usability, and therefore to be a domain of peace, understanding, and reconciliation, this was an illusion. Technology, he said, 
is always only an instrument and a weapon. Precisely because it serves all, it is not neutral. Like in every previous era, the central domain of technology would be put to use by the political, whether the political was recognized to exist or not. And uh, people wanted me to comment on the new Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity text, which showed that they didn't really believe Donald Trump's claims about a stolen election, but they were most concerned with learning viewers. And a friend says, are you surprised? You know, come on, are you surprised that uh, they're as cynical as that? No, I'm not surprised, but it is compelling to see th these texts just uh, spelled out. So here's the... Uh, I want to rewind now back to November 2020, election night. Millions of people were watching Fox News when it became the first major network to project Joe Biden, not Donald Trump, had won the key state of Arizona in the presidential race. It was the right call, but it threw the network into a crisis. We're learning vivid new details now about how that crisis played out thanks to legal filings in a blockbuster defamation lawsuit against Fox. NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik joins us in. Good morning, David. Good morning, Osma. So why was Fox News thrown into a panic simply because its journalists correctly called a state that Biden had indeed won? Well, this isn't about journalistic values at Fox. It's about brand identity. And you don't have to take my word for it. That's what executives, including the chief executive at Fox News, said to one another mm -hmm. behind the scenes. Fox viewers, their loyal Trump voters, started bleeding to smaller rival Newsmax. So within days of Election Day, you saw Fox stars beginning to air and seemingly embrace at times conspiracy theories without solid evidence, including that this vote tech company, Dominion Voting Systems, switched Trump votes to Biden. We now know this was incredible hypocrisy behind the scenes. The Fox stars and execs were trashing the idea of these allegations and broadcasting them anyway. Okay. So, David, give us an example of what Fox's viewers were encountering. Well, let's take a listen. Uh, take Fox News's Maria Bartiromo, what she said on November 29th, 2020, to then-President Trump after he alleged on her show that the Dominion machines were engineered to commit fraud against him. This election was a this fraud. It was a rigged election. This is disgusting, and we cannot allow America's election to be corrupted. So under oath, Bartiromo conceded to Dominion's lawyers the claims Trump and his camp were relying on lacked any credibility. She called them kooky later on. Fox News repeatedly hosted this Trump ally, an attorney named Sidney Powell, who made wild claims. Tucker Carlson pretty effectively showed she had no proof in his interview of her, but many of his colleagues presented her as a serious figure, even while trashing her in private text to one another. Sean Hannity had her on his show. Privately, he called her and her assertions outlandish. Jeff Garopi, Jean-Francois Garopi, he had no problem pimping uh, Sidney Powell and all these ridiculous allegations of voter fraud. He was on this day in, day out because it's what his audience wanted to hear. Robert Fischel at Fox Corp called it mind-blowingly nuts. Right. So saying what you believe to be true, doing the right thing isn't always advantageous. You'll get a lot more viewers if you, you know, peddle the nonsense that people want to hear. And these Fox hosts, they were primarily concerned about losing viewership and the power and reach of Fox News. So they were quite willing to promote lies. And that's what they did. This is why there are many very serious, very accurate, very powerful critiques of Tucker Carlson. At the same time, Tucker Carlson does a lot of you know good stuff. So Tucker Carlson, like Donald Trump, for me, is very much a mixed bag. I, I think overall Tucker does more good than harm, but he does you know so many, so many horrible, horrible things as well. So, David, this gets to how we know all of this, because Dominion has been making these claims for, what, about two years now. Uh, what makes these new details notable? 
Well, Dominion lays all of this out in a filing yesterday with all kinds of new evidence they've gained in this process called discovery. And the cynicism and the fear inside Fox News is presented in technicolor. You have these executives and star hosts who are privately clear-eyed. There's no evidence Dominion committed fraud, none. Mm -hmm. Yet they're angry. Not at the claims, but that at their newsroom colleagues, journalists who say that there's no credence to these allegations on the air to Fox viewers and in public. Many of those viewers don't want to hear it. So you had one Fox News reporter accurately fact-checking claims of fraud that appeared on Fox's air in a tweet. Tucker Carlson privately called for her to be fired, and she pulled the tweet down. In another instance, Fox's CEO privately denounced a top Washington editor for Fox for failing to protect the station's brand. So how is Fox responding to all of this? What is it saying? They're saying a few big things. They're saying Dominion's trying to punish it for covering the news for allegations put forth by the then-sitting president. They say Dominion is cherry-picking these messages. They say it's trying to chill speech so that people don't cover things they don't want to. But the mainstream media has a good point that Fox is not a news organization like other news organizations. So Fox isn't different from ABC, CNN, NBC in the sense that it has a bias. Yeah, Fox has a bias, but Fox doesn't even try to present the news accurately, frequently. So the New York Times, for example, is a left-wing publication, but uh, they don't carry water for the Democrats to the the same extent that uh, Fox News consistently carries water for Republicans cover things they don't want it covered. And they say Dominion didn't really suffer the harm it claims and certainly doesn't deserve $1.6 billion it's seeking in the suit. Very briefly, David, what happens next? So there's a trial set for April, and generally defamation cases are hard to win. This is an unusually evidence-rich record that Dominion's been presenting in these filings. So as a result, a number of media lawyers I've talked to really do expect a settlement. That's if Dominion is willing to take the money and if, and this is a real question, they can wrangle some kind of apology out of Mm -hmm. Fox News, which the network has so far been unwilling to give. And uh, Tim Pool, he's he's also just terrible. I mean, he gets stupider. But when you start watching Tim Pool, well, let's have is a the fix it. already in? It is a damning indictment of Fox News. The outcome of our presidential election was seized from the hands of voters. As a network publicly and repeatedly promoted former President Trump's 2020 election fraud claims to millions of their viewers. Every American should be angry. You should be outraged. You should be worried. You should be concerned at what has happened in the election and in the lead up to this election. Privately, top anchors and executives mock Trump's lies, calling... So pundits get a following to the extent that they tell a particular audience what they want to hear, right? It's not the profundity, the morality, the philosophical consistency, the rhetorical beauty of what they have to say. It is they're servicing a client just like a prostitute. The ludicrous, really crazy stuff and totally off the rails. The revelations coming from hundreds of pages of newly released evidence in the legal filing as part of the Dominion Voting System's lawsuit against Fox News. In this text exchanged two weeks after the election, Tucker Carlson texting other Fox News hosts. Sidney Powell is lying, by the way. I caught her. It's insane. He says about Trump's lawyer, Sidney Powell, and Rudy Giuliani's unfounded claims. Sydney is a complete nut. No one will work with her. Ditto with Rudy, Laura Ingram wrote back. Tucker responds, it's unbelievably offensive to me. Our viewers are good people and they believe it. Even as those same hosts went on the air arguing completely otherwise. All right, these election challenges are still going on and disturbing irregularities have been found and must be investigated to the fullest. 
On election night, the network first to call Arizona for Biden. The Fox News decision desk is calling Arizona for Joe Biden. That is a big get for the Biden campaign. As Trump's baseless conspiracy theories started to take hold. This is a fraud on the American public. So we'll be going to the U.S. Supreme Court. Carlson wrote his producer warning that Trump could easily destroy us if we play it wrong. The court documents showing a scramble behind the scenes as viewers rebelled against Fox for calling the contest in Biden's favor and a course correction internally to prioritize profitability over the truth. After Fox News reporter Jackie Henrich fact-checked a Trump tweet about votes being destroyed, Tucker Carlson texting his colleagues, please get her fired. Seriously, what the F? It's measurably hurting the company. The stock price is down. Fox News in a statement argues the court filing contains cherry-picked quotes lacking context. As Fox News hosts continue this week to sow doubt. Was the 2020 election a miracle? Honestly, we don't know. We don't expect to get an answer to it tonight. Okay, some good stuff there from CNN. So everyone is better off with accurate criticism. That seems very accurate criticism of Fox coming from, first of all, David Fokenflick, the media reporter at NPR, and then CNN's report on Tucker Carlson and company. Okay, that's going to do it for now. Take care. Bye-bye.